nothing gets gross as gross as a sleeping bag when you're sweaty. Oh no. Cause it's not it's not the felt lined ones. It's those super polyester lined ones that stick to you once mm-hmm. you start sweating, so you're rolling around slowly encapsulating yourself inside this cocoon and you feel like a spider's wrapping you up ready to eat you. And it just gets all slick and moist in there. Yeah, sometimes that's good, but not in a sleeping bag. No, nobody wants that. That's nasty. That's nasty. (laughs) I'm ready. Who wants to start this thing? Welcome to Nashville CA, your bi-weekly, bi-movie, bi- wait, um, dual movie <laughs> podcast? Is that what we do? Double feature? That didn't, that didn't go well. And you took such <laughs> like a big deep breath to relax yourself, <laughs> and you come out, and I started giggling, because right off the bat, welcome to Nashville. It's like, whoa, who is this guy? I haven't heard this guy before. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, once again, we are your bastion for complete professionalism here in the podcast <laughs> universe. Uh, We're doing great. Josh, what's up, dude? Oh, not a whole lot. I am excited to talk about these movies uh, that I watched like a long time ago for the first time. I was excited to rewatch them and now talk about them because I've got a lot more thoughts than I did previously. So. Uh, yeah, I'm really excited. We basically just talked about what movie gets under your skin and what movie has, like, just kind of spooked you and freaked you out. And that was, um, the basis for, look at this fucking little bird eating the peaches out of the tree. Get out of there! (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, viewers, there was a bird eating peaches that I had to scare off. Anyways, um... Yeah, so these movies freaked the fuck out of us at one point or another in our lives. And, you know, as a horror fan, there's not that many movies these days that are able to give me the chills. Like, And so I'm really excited to talk about both of these. Yeah, it's like I recognize things could be quote unquote scary at times, but few things actually really get to me. Uh, and both of these films have stuck with me over the years. And I don't, I don't even know the first time I watched our second movie, uh, because it was pre letterboxed. So, you know, everything before letterbox was lost to the sands of time. You were never an IMDB person. Uh, I used to keep notebooks. I had Moleskines with like, I would write down, uh, the movies I watched and give them a star ranking. Um, but uh, to go back through those would be insane to try to find one title. Sorry, you said Moleskine? Yeah, Mol- Moleskine? Is that not I've, how you say it? I've said Moleskine my entire life. Maybe that's just a West, <laughs> a West Coast thing where we just can't be bothered to pronounce it correctly. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I'm just being uh, pretentious and presumptuous. I don't know, but hey... We're talking about movies with mysteries at the bottom of them, and here's another one. How do you pronounce that <laughs> word? I love it. We'll get Kobayashi to make a documentary about this. If you can find him. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
That's, that brings us to our first movie, which is uh, Noroi, The Curse, released in Japan in 2005. And I'm going to say right off the bat, I'm going to do my best to pronounce some of these names. No offense intended if I butcher them. Uh, it's directed by Koji Shiraishi and starring Jin Murakai, Ryo Kano, and Tomono Kuga. I think you did a pretty dang good job there. I'm sure it was terrible, but let's, let's pretend I did all right. So, okay, as long as you can say Kagutaba. Got Kagutaba down. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I think we can only say that like five times throughout the course of this episode or something bad might happen. You already <laughs> it's a Candyman situation? Yeah, so you already had it twice, dude. <laughs> How many times was Beetlejuice? Three times? I think three times. It's did been Beetlejuice... a hot minute since I've seen Beetlejuice. Did Beetlejuice... Did that just rip off Candyman or did those ideas exist separately i think that they're both plays on the bloody mary so okay so i don't know this i thought maybe Candyman was then the origin of the bloody mary myth that kids would tell each other i wasn't mm -hmm. i've never been completely clear on the whole stand in a mirror because i remember i've never i've never done it have you ever said bloody mary in a dark bathroom yes and freaked myself the fuck out I remember my sisters telling me about it, and I think I stood in the bathroom once as they started to do it, and I was just like, no, 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 this is not, <laughs> no fucking way am I going to be here when this woman appears behind us in the mirror. The, let's see, the origin of Bloody Mary, the storyline lies with Queen Mary the uh, First, oh, who was born yeah. in 1516 in Greenwich, England. But Bloody Mary, so, is this... Is this anything with uh, Elizabeth Bathory? That's something completely different, huh? I think that's a different one. Although there's um, a great episode of Grady Hendrix's short-lived podcast uh, where he covered uh, Elizabeth Bathory and the myths around her, which is pretty good. You ever play yeah, Bloody this... Knuckles? Yeah. Uh, okay, did you ever play that game uh, where you slap through the person's hands? Where you, like... They rest their hands on yours, and you you have to slap them. Yeah, yes. But so there is the, a variation the six year old. That. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say our our six year old uh, has learned this game recently, and she doesn't like to lose. But of course, I'm much better than a six year old uh, at this <laughs> at this game. Good, good for you, dude. I'm proud of you. Yes, uh, and when when she slaps down. She goes with all of her weight into the slaps, and it's really funny so far. Uh, my mom and I played that game probably way past the time we should have, because I think she took out a lot of her frustrations, because she would just slap the shit out of my hand sometimes. <laughs> I still have scars on my knuckles from, well, one, uh, I remember my brother-in-law and I, Southwest, used to have plastic boarding passes. And oh, so yeah, we yeah. basically play bloody knuckles with those where you'd hold out mm -hmm. your fist and then the other person would smack you in the knuckles with your boarding pass. Uh, okay. That was a good time. And then the other um, scars I have were from the quarter game where sitting around homeroom in seventh grade on a big desk, somebody flicks a quarter to get it spinning upright. And then the next person has to flick it again to keep it spinning. And so it's just a matter okay. of ping pong back and forth who can keep this rally going and then whoever yeah. knocks the quarter down you then got to put your fist 
knuckles down against the desk, and then somebody takes the, the quarter and basically places it down under their thumb and uses two fingers in front of it like a slingshot, and they just they put so much force onto their thumb that when they launch it at your knuckles, it flies, and we get like bloody knuckles and shit. <laughs> <laughs> I was Kids never are that, so stupid. I was never that good at the game, so I, I, I took a lot more punishment than I ever dilled out, but eh, uh-huh. it, was, it was fun. It's like playing Mumbledy Peg. Yeah. Uh, what are we talking about? We're talking about Noroi the Curse. Nor, <laughs> Noroi the Curse. I can't even say the title. You had problems with the names, but I can't even get through the title. It's rough. So Noroi focuses around... Um, a guy named Kobayashi, who's basically a, a paranormal investigator slash documentarian. And so the movie right off the bat, very early on, starts... Well, after we see... Right off the bat, this movie throws you for a loop, because it's... The first shot is it introducing that we're going to watch a movie inside of a movie. Yes. And you're warned that the contents of the film you're going to watch are too disturbing for the general public. Like, there's a little warning that pops up on the screen, which is always good to see at the beginning uh, of your flicks. And it it's not really found footage because it's like we're watching a documentary within this other documentary. And it's presented more like a documentary than just a straight found footage narrative. And so you see the documentarian going through the beats of putting this together kind of in different spots. And he and the cameraman will play footage back over again uh, sometimes. So it's not like paranormal activity where it's just straight. Here's what happened. Um, It plays the documentary form a little bit more. And it reminded me of uh, something like Ghost Watch. Did you ever see that? Uh, mm, That sounds really familiar. Ghostwatch was a, a British show that apparently only aired once because they got so many calls about it because it was presented as a news program uh, where somebody was going to go investigate a haunted house and then shit goes wild. Um, and people thought it was real. They thought it was like an actual investigative thing. Uh, and that's just amazing to me. I love that movie. It aired on Halloween night on 1992. Come on. Yes. That- if you fall for something on Hall, it's like don't fall for things on Halloween and April first. Come on now. Yes. I right. yeah. It's like fi- seeing the picture of the spaghetti trees in the newspaper and thinking that they're real. Spaghetti on trees? April first. Yeah, it was a famous newspaper prank where they showed uh, uh, Italians, native Italians, harvesting spaghetti off the trees. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> That's like. When I was a kid and I heard that cork comes from trees, I just pictured, like, a tree with a bunch of hanging wine corks just hanging <laughs> off of all the branches. I don't know. I'm uh-huh. dumb. <laughs> uh, it's so, already been said, but kids, kids are really stupid. Yeah, I was also told and believed for, for a brief period of time, like an hour or two, that mm-hmm. uh, black and white cows are milk and brown and white cows were the chocolate milk cows. Mm-hmm. Felt pretty. It's a classic. Some farmer got me good with that one on a field trip. (laughs) Uh, uh, We also find out right off the bat in this movie that um, it's going to result in Kobayashi's 
house burning to the ground and he's going missing. Yeah, which uh, the little epilogue that happens at the end, like explains more about it. But I really like the fact that they start with this because you feel like it's doomed the entire time because, you know, something bad's going to happen to this dude and probably most of the people that he's interviewing, which I think is such an interesting way to start your movie of like, hey, these people are all going to die. Sometimes I have a problem with it when, for instance, the most recent one I can think of is in Don't Breathe. There's a shot from about 45, 50 minutes into the movie that they play for the Mm -hmm. first 20 seconds, and it's just a repeat shot. And so it's more, I feel like that's just like a spoiler of this is what's going to happen, but it's getting spoiled for you, whereas this is more intriguing because it's, it's enticing you of like, this is going to be a wild ride that's not going to go well, but you still don't know anything. Um, yes. So I don't, I don't, it's hard, it's hard to know when that little utility works and when I think it's kind of exploitative and dumb, but I think in this case it totally works. Yeah, and I think that this is more like, once again, taking from the documentary side of things, whereas I feel like a lot of um, time jumps in movies like that uh, really started with Tarantino. And they do it because it's cool and they saw it in movies uh, and they don't actually do it for a narrative reason or like an audience viewership reason. Whereas I feel like this just pulls you into the story right off the bat. Yeah, I, I, I think a lot of times it's either a director has seen it done in other movies and thought it was cool or a producer tells a director, hey, this movie's boring as fuck for the first 25 minutes yes. and we need to keep asses in the seats. So you need to put something in the fruit. That's why so many slashers and stuff just are front ended by one random ass kill or mm-hmm. it's a flashback kill or something. You got to get something in those first five minutes for the impatient people. Oh yeah. That's and I've definitely used that trope uh, multiple times in things that I've made, uh, which is, I don't know. It can be really fun to like have a kill right up front, but um, yeah, when it's not done for when it's not done with the purest of intentions, I will say it can be bad. Yeah. Well, again, looking at our second movie, if they tried to throw a scare in the first, oh yeah, five to ten minutes, that I, that would not have worked at all. No. So, um. With no right, the next part that happens is um, we get a um, like a, a title card. But it's not a title card; it's more of a mission statement from uh, Kobayashi himself, and it says in all capital letters, "I want the truth." Mm-hmm. And this to me was like such an X Files moment of you know the truth is out there. I want to believe all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's uh, I love, especially at the beginning, how it feels. Uh, so much like a documentary before the second part starts um they're they're doing like uh they're panning across shots of kobayashi's previous films and books and things and they have like still shots inserted and it feels a lot feels really ken burnsy in the very beginning like something you would come across on television i thought that was great I would love to see a Ken Burns horror movie. Oh my god. That yes. would be so cool if you could figure out a way to just make still photos with slow zooms terrifying. That yeah. would be amazing. 
that's I wanted to steal this uh, method, the one that they employ here. I mean, before I ever saw this movie, I had the idea of like, what if it's found footage, but it's a documentary and it documents in my mind, it was the documentarian like going crazy and getting drawn into something, which kind of happens here, although he mostly stays as an observer until the events happen to him right at the end. Yeah, that uh, that would be a cool movie to watch, honestly. Um, yeah, Kobayashi seems to be pretty level. It's not... This movie is not nearly as much about his character arc as it is about the curse itself and then the victims of the curse. He's just kind mm-hmm. of there to to pull us along and ask questions and figure it shit out. Yeah. So, after we're introduced to him uh, through the documentary footage... Um, once we're inside the movie in the movie, he starts interviewing a woman about some strange sounds in her house. And uh, there's a woman who lives next door. Who's really creepy and slams the door in his face immediately where the sounds seem to be emanating from. And they go to have the sounds analyzed. And the analyst tells them that it sounds like five babies crying in unison, which is just a horrifying thought. Yeah, so the woman answers the door. It's like, was she say, how dare do you speak to me like that? Yeah. Or something? But, yep. man, it, intense lady. <laughs> yes. Like, this is like that level of intensity I feel like you only tend to get in Japanese horror films of just like these characters who are so strung out by being haunted that they're like on the fucking knife's edge, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but, man... I was so excited when we got to go to this sound analysis lab and see this yes. guy with the spectrograph and watching him cleaning it up and everything. I was yep. like, I love this. This movie does a lot of cool, like, I called it multimedia, where it, mm-hmm. it uses a lot of different approaches to, to tell this story through different kinds of TV, different kinds of documentary, um, different styles. And so this one was so dry but sitting there listening to the audio tape and then as it gets scrubbed and then the guy defining i love that also this guy is like well a cat meow usually starts with like a high before it drops back there this is not a cat (laughs) meow (laughs) so uh the surly neighbor moves away her name is uh junko ishii i believe yes they find out they they poke around her abandoned house um, and they find some mail that says her name and a whole bunch of dead pigeons, which the dead pigeons is a motif that um, I think the first time I watched this, I didn't really catch on to um, like how important they would be. And that's the thing. Everything in this matters. It seems like it's going to be, um, like a normal found footage movie, which is just kind of there built for the scares, I feel like. But this, there's so many little things that add up uh, to the plot and actually wind up in their part of the curse overall that uh, it's just the world that it builds, I think, is really intricate. There's a lot of moving pieces for this movie. And yeah, I with these two movies, I did not take any notes watching them the first time because I just wanted... Because we were going for scares, I, I just wanted that complete visceral experience. Yeah. Going back and trying to remember what happened in this movie, I, 
I it, it was so dense. There's so much information exchanged mm -hmm. through conversation and things in this movie that, um, but like you said, watching it through it a second time, picking up on all this stuff as I'm fast-forwarding through it, scanning through it, and taking notes, yeah, you do realize that it seems like it's throwing red herrings at you, but almost every red herring eventually comes back around. Yes. Uh, and dogs, feels... dogs and pigeons, they don't do well in this yes. movie. And uh, ropes and doodles and all kinds yeah. of things like come Sick back to play. Sickles do very well in this movie. This is a real pro sickle kind of movie. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so at this point, is this where we get to go to um, the the scene with all the school children doing the the psych paranormal psychological uh, ESP testing? Yes. Um, well, we get a, a superimposed uh, title card saying that the woman who complained about the noises died five days later. Like... Oh, right, in a car crash, I think, right? Yeah, and it's just like, oh, well, something <laughs> tragic happened to them, and we already know that that's the fate of almost everybody we're going to meet. So, uh, but yeah, we get the, the TV program with children with psychic powers, <laughs> and we meet Kana, I think is her name? Yes. Uh, okay who passes uh, most of the tests for to be psychic that they do on this TV program, which I wonder if there's actually TV programs like this, if this was actually a thing. Um, and I would love to watch one of these things if it's real. This seemed... This seemed too uh, grounded and realistic to, to be fiction. <laughs> this right. felt like... People like this would just be like a common TV show that you watched or something. I don't know that you know the production of it and everything. Yeah. Um, so this scene started out as like, uh, what is this movie going to be? One of those things where it's it's a bunch of different stories that are kind of related but kind of not, and we're just kind of it's like an anthology thing. Like what mm -hmm. what is this movie? Maybe it's just a bunch of short films or something. Um, and then um, we see. The girl, she does all the normal drawings with the circles and all the symbols. But when it shows that she holds up that drawing and she's drawn mm -hmm. what we later find is the uh, Kagutaba mask. Yes. Creeps me the fuck out. <laughs> like that was. These movies both emanated chills down me at various points, which is something that, like only horror can really do or certain spectacle movies, but where it's like. What I'm seeing is just so cool or so scary or whatever that like a chill starts in my lower spine and like travels from my body and I get goosebumps in my arms and like yes. and that's like that's my fear response. And so this part where she holds up that drawing and it's just that fucking weird ass face with the tilted chin and the black eyes, it like sent a chill down my spine. Yeah, a lot of this movie does that. Um, it makes me think of, have you ever seen the Vincent Price movie, The Tingler? No. That's a it's, preposterous name. It is. Well, and the the creature itself is supposedly this creature that lives, like, in the bottom of your spine and grows up the length of it and gives you the tingles uh, and can eventually choke you and kill you. And... Uh, it was a William Castle production, and when they showed it in theaters, they actually had seats with Joy Buzzers rigged 
So there's a scene in the movie where the tingler gets loose in a movie theater and they would buzz the seats when people would uh, when the lights went out. Oh, that's Just, awesome. I bet people lost yeah, their minds. Fantastic. Also, I heard you say tinkler, not tingler. <laughs> So, uh, so I laugh because it's just like Vincent Price just running around peeing on things. <laughs> so that's a weird movie. All right. Uh, uh, so after this, we get oh, and then she also um, the next test in this scene is the material materialization test, yes. where basically the guy says that people with psychic powers can create water to magically appear. And uh, mm -hmm. we essentially see Kana do this in a beaker. But the water that she materializes is kind of grody looking, and there's black hair in it. Yep. Hair possibly from a newborn baby, we find out later. Yeah. Which is just gross. Yes, I 100% I agree with you there. Uh, so Kobayashi goes to interview Kana. Uh, and all we find out right now is that she's had a fever since the TV demonstration thing happened. Um, and what's cool about this, like if you haven't grabbed onto it yet, is we see uh, Kobayashi's actual like documentary footage that his cameraman shoot or he himself shoots. But then we also see scenes from um, we get television programs and uh, like Sean said, audio from other sources. And later we get a 16 millimeter film cut into it. So it feels like it really feels like the world is really vast. And I love the fact that although it's annoying to watch it a little bit, like how grainy and kind of distorted most of the footage looks because it was shot on mini DV. Uh, so when they're running fast and stuff, it kind of the image breaks up and uh, you can't quite see it well. I mean, it looks like something out of the early 2000s. And it really helps them later because then having that natural artifacting sometimes makes it more believable when they use artifacting to then do yes. a scare or to do an effect or to hide a cut in there. Um, it makes it just much more believable. And also something really creepy as we see the standard definition VCR looking recordings of these TV shows that were presented along with the mm -hmm. documentary um, were shown God, like four or five different TV show scenes throughout this movie. We're about to see the next one hanging out with the ungirls. And uh Yes. <laughs> but something about that that grain and that that grime on the the film really adds to the creepiness of it, especially on a low budget like this. All this this movie did have a $2 million budget, which kind of surprises me. Well, and did you notice that the the director, uh, Shirashi, Shir, Shirashi, yeah, uh, has gone on and done other, like, found footage, fake documentary, mockumentary type movies? No, I did not look into him. Oh my god, his Wikipedia photo yeah. is so cool, he's punching the lens of a camera. <laughs> that's pretty awesome yeah he did a an erotica film uh in the found food style which i am fascinated about uh we might need to watch that for this show <laughs> our most awkward awkward episode ever um oh that is a great oh film. he 
Wait. picture of him. Grotesque. Oh, I think it's a different grotesque than the one I saw. Yeah, it is. Uh, I don't think oh, okay. I've seen anything else by this guy. I haven't seen that many Japanese movies, though. Japanese I've horror... done the main, like, J-horror stuff, but nothing kind of outside of The Ring and The Grudge. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat. I've seen some crazy stuff like uh, Machine Girl, where a girl's leg mm -hmm. gets cut off and she has a machine gun leg or something, and um, Tetsuo, Iron Man. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah, for the most part, especially the... The the grudge style, ring style horror. I thought the ring was creepy when it came out, but I don't know, after a while meowing children and white faced like white makeup faced women just uh, doesn't creep me out eventually, you know? Yeah, I did a bunch of those, because um, I think they were all playing on Shudder uh, early on in the pandemic during lockdown, like when I was started working from home. I just had my laptop open doing my work and had those playing in the background. So I got through several of the, the Ring movies. Uh, Rings was pretty wild, if I remember. Actually, I don't remember that much from it at all. I just remember the scene on the airplane. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, oh, yeah. So, all right. Back to the We got the Ungirls, which are, it looks like it's a show with two dudes who host, who call themselves the Ungirls because they're boys, mm -hmm. and yes, I, I don't want to watch this show, but <laughs> and so they go to the site of this old shrine with, who are they with right now? Are they with um, Marika? Okay. Yes. Or Marika? I, I don't know how to say it. I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh, so they're with her, and they go, and they're freaked out, and they're Oh, we don't want to go up there, but we have to go up there because we're filming a show and that's why we're here. And uh, so they're hanging with Marika and then all of a sudden she kind of does her possession thing where she starts screaming and collapses to the ground and everyone's freaked out. And um, that's kind of the end of this scene for now. We'll come back to it in a few minutes. Yes. Uh, and Marika is actually playing herself. Marika Matsumoto was a uh or probably still is an actress who i think became famous kind of for being famous um and she was the mascot for a convenience store chain <laughs> and so she was on a bunch of commercials early on so she got into acting that way but i can imagine like if you did an american version of this if you had like someone like paris hilton or something acting within the movie as herself, it would just add another layer of realism slash what the fuck is to it. I am picturing where you see them acting alongside actresses. I'm picturing flow from the progressive commercials, which I wouldn't <laughs> mind seeing flow in a horror movie. No offense to that actor, but I want yes. that character to die a horrible, horrible death. <laughs> Again, nothing personal with so the charming. actor. It's just, that ad campaign has gone on far long enough. Please stop. Um, what about the, the girl from the Education Connection commercials? Do you remember those? No. Okay. Yeah, that was uh, 
a big one oh, for a while. What about the guy being on late night television? The guy who wore the jacket with all the question marks all over it because he had like a get rich oh. quick scheme. Matthew Lesko? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Let's put that guy in a horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he looks like Budget the Riddler. Yeah, that guy. Uh, okay, so Mariko, we see later on on a different show that's, I believe, not with the Ungirls. She's back at like a studio panel kind of show. And they say mm-hmm. that they're going to bring out a psychic to kind of help her through what she experienced or maybe give her some insight and... This is where we meet um, Mr. Hori, and yes, um, he, is, he essentially just attacks her immediately and starts shouting, be aware of all the pigeons. Yeah, uh, you're in trouble, watch out for the pigeons, stuff like that, you know, totally normal for a, a panel show. Yeah, it kind of did you, look like did a Jerry Springer this, thing. I mean, he had the foil bowler, not a bowler cap. I don't, it's almost like... Like a bucket yeah, it's hat. it's like one of those, like, Australia or African safari hats covered in foil. Yes. Do I have thoughts about Hori? Oh, I have some thoughts about Hori. <laughs> so, <laughs> when I watch a foreign language movie, I often find that I think every actor is excellent because I don't know if their dialogue is stilted or not. So, it's right. so much easier for me to tell. It, I mean, excuse me. It's so much more difficult for me to tell if somebody's giving a good performance when it's in Danish or Japanese or Chinese or Mandarin or mm-hmm. anything, I'm pretty sure Mr. Hori is giving a terrible performance. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I was worried that it's insulting to neurodiverse people uh, because of how many ticks and everything he has. Like he's, I think he's portrayed as being on the spectrum or something. It's not, um, it's not comfortable to watch him. He's for the most part. He's doing the same thing a lot in this movie and there's like a lot of uncomfortable shots that like get too close to his teeth as his mouth is just agape and he's staring at the ceiling moaning. <laughs> it's Oh yeah, especially as it goes on. What he's doing is a lot is what I'll say. So, uh Kobayashi meets with the director of the the Ungirls show. Uh, and get some more footage that they have not shown to Marika yet. Um, and it shows, like, the camera pans past her, and there's an apparition kind of beside her and in the distance. Um, and that's immediately before she f- had freaked out and, f- and fell down. Uh, this was another chill down the spine moment for me. It's so yes. easy, but I think the execution of this movie and how unsettled I am up to this point by this movie means that this pays off where you get just the pan and you just see back 40 feet away there's just like a gray silhouette of something standing there in the tree line um and i love the fact that they go back to it like uh within the documentary just like you would in a regular found footage movie i think they would play this once uh but here you get kobayashi and his cameraman kind of in voiceover talking about it and then it goes back and they kind of step frame through uh, seeing this thing. And it's still freaky the second time you see it, which I think is awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I think this is a good time to talk about with this movie is the transition between the scenes is mm-hmm. just a black screen with no sound. 
usually for about three to five seconds. Yep. And so in scenes like earlier where the kids are all in the classroom and the girl draws like a scary face or she materializes water, the movie will do something unsettling and then just cut to black and then cut to the next scene in a completely different location. And there's something about that. It, it, it's, it always leaves you kind of dangling on these unsettling moments. And then those cuts to black make it feel less published or less polished like a movie and more raw and unfiltered. And so right. I, I think that was part of the reasons that this worked so well is because I, I really made sure when I watched both these to like watch them at night, blinds closed, all the lights off, like give these as much of a true theatrical feeling as I could. And it really mm-hmm. helped because those moments where you're sitting in the room by yourself after this creepy shit happens in your living room is pitch black. Pretty creepy. Yeah, I love that they really used the form of what they were making, uh, because in a normal horror movie, not like a found footage movie, but a normal horror movie, you have to have an end to the scene. If something freaky happens to your character, they still have to leave that room and go to the next thing. And you're oftentimes like stuck with, how do I show that? Um, and towards the climax of a movie, you can get away with kind of cutting on those actions. But here, because it is found footage and it seems like they just cut and it works so well. And yeah, I watched this in two chunks and the second piece was at night by myself. Um, and I had my laptop open making notes and even with kind of the interruption of, of pausing it to make my notes and stuff, it still really, really worked. And those moments, like, they just hang with you in a really gross way that I loved. (laughs) So the next scene that we have here is um, we see Kana having dinner with her parents. Mm -hmm. And spoilers for one of our previous movies, Stalker, fast forward 30 seconds if you don't listen to that or haven't seen it. This part here totally reminded me of monkey at the end of stalker oh yeah she shoots the the bowls off the table yes and i love the part though after where it's like oh that was a cool little trick her parents drag her into the bedroom and kobayashi then we see they look back at the table and there's been a spoon that's been snapped in half and the head of the spoon is just spinning in place on the table yep that was awesome that's uh in my notes i put utterly chilling moment because uh, they cut from an interview of Kana, and at the end of the interview, she says, I guess it's just too late for all of us. And the camera just, like, hangs on her for a few seconds. And then you immediately go to this dinner scene where almost instantly she wipes the table off with her brain, apparently, or some ghost does. And then you get the... <laughs> wipes, wipes the table off with her brain. Yes. <laughs> With mind <laughs> powers, you know. Yeah, yeah, but with her brain has me picturing her like using her physical brain <laughs> as a sponge to clear the table or something. That's a weird way to put it, man. I get uh, excited when I talk sometimes. Words come out. Yeah, weird. I know, I know, but that's why we're good hosts together. <laughs> <laughs> so after this, um again, like after that spoon is spinning, hard cut black. So mm-hmm. again, unsettling, creepy. And we go to a reality show now, and the host of the reality show is going into Mr. Hori's house. And um, th- this part's really strange, because he, Mr. Hori lives in a house that's covered in foil, 
he starts talking about ectoplasmic worms. And the whole time this host is basically talking shit about him and making fun of him in front of his face on the camera. Mm-hmm. It um, feels like she thinks he's in on the joke at first. And then as it gets weirder and weirder, her reactions are kind of like she gets more and more freaked out as it goes on, uh, which I liked. But he shows her he's got these um, piles of papers that are like flyers, apparently, that he puts up that are that talk about all these ectoplasmic worms that he sees. And they're crawling all over. Uh, and I think that's why he has the tinfoil. Um, and he has guarded the outside of his house with writing, like covered it with these uh, flyers and big kind of poster boards with painted writing on them. Um, which I wish I could read Japanese because I, I want to know what they say. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's kind of one of those moments like in, um, what's the movie? Seven. Um, when it shows the, all the diaries and journals in Seven and he's yeah. just flipping through the pages. It, you sometimes just want to stop on a freeze frame and just read a page out of that diary and be like, all right, what did this art director write in this thing? Because yes. like... It's, they had to make all of this shit, and so somebody had to fill all of these pages. And it can't just be nonsense, or maybe it is, but right. Laura I feel Ipsen. like people would catch on to that. So, yeah, do you think... I, yeah, I wasn't quite sure if the foil thing... Now that you mentioned that it's worms, because I know it's like people will put out copper wiring to stop snails and slugs in their gardens... So now I'm thinking, like, do worms oh, not wow. like aluminum foil or something? <laughs> I don't Ectoplasmic worms don't. <laughs> well, that's a good point. You know, I think I might have missed the ectoplasm, ectoplasmic worm lecture in chemistry. Yes. It's a, you, you just get it by watching Ghostbusters a whole bunch of times. I think it was that day it. where I faked an ear infection so I could stay home and play worms on Sega Genesis. Oh, man. That's Remember worms? Yes. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Just pretending to be sick so I can stay home and play worms. <laughs> uh, so, so after this scene, um, we essentially, do we get a card or a news thing that says that Kana has disappeared? We get, we see a flyer with her face on it and then a card that says she's missing. Um... And then it turns out that the week before she went missing, she had been contacted by Mr. Hori. Hori? Is that his yes. name? Yeah. H Hori, Ori. I don't know if that H, if you hit that H or not. H-O-R-I. Yeah, okay. uh, the super psychic, uh, these, as they call him. These parents are letting this man visit their daughter multiple times. Yes. And they took her word that he was okay. The daughter said, oh, don't worry about him. He's fine. And they were like, no, okay. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not, <laughs> not <happening>. cool. <laughs> for, and for a long time in the movie, all of my assumptions were that he was the one at the bottom of it. That he had done something heinous. Really? Where did yeah. you, let's, let's go back just a little bit. You're the one who chose this movie. Where did you see this for the first time? So I watched it about six or seven years ago. Um, some buddies of mine and I do a, uh, well, we do a bunch of movie marathons, but every Halloween time we do a 24 hour horror movie marathon. So we watched this 
it was fairly early on because we don't put anything with subtitles on too late Smart. because otherwise you get angry at the subtitles. Yeah. Um, but it, it didn't play that well in that kind of environment. I think like kind of big, broad, goofy movies tended to do a lot better when you're sitting around joking with your buddies. Um, something like this really benefits from watching it this time. The first time I watched it, I gave it like two and a half stars, I think, which for me is like, it's moderate. I might watch it again. I might not. Um, this time I gave it four, though, just to you know spoil the ending there. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to spoil my rating because that's a really dumb thing you just did. And now everyone's going <laughs> to turn off the episode. So listeners, you won't get my review until the very end. No, well, at least we got that to hang over their heads. <laughs> um, both of these movies, I feel. Are much more powerful in a solo viewing experience. Yes, I've shown my friends session nine, like hanging out the house, and even when nobody's talking. I don't know. There's something about not being alone that brings comfort. And I think both these movies, that unsettling feeling comes from when you're alone in the room with it. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. That's, I think Session 9 is, the world of it is so well drawn. Like, I feel like I've been inside Danvers uh, Asylum, um, hospital, whatever they call it. Uh, I feel like I could I could draw you a map of the places these guys go, and I hate it. Like I feel like the asbestos dust is on me from that movie. It's so I, well done. I I totally get what you're saying, especially after having seen that movie now six or seven times. It's yeah. I feel like I could give a guided tour of Danvers. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, after this, after Kana disappears. Kobayashi visits Hori and essentially gets him to, um, what, oh, he, he shows Hori the, the video of Junko Ishii, I think, and mm-hmm. then also gets him to draw a picture of where, where Kana is. And so he's not sure yes. if he's drawing him a map or a photo or what, um, but it's at this point, I think it's after this scene where it's, it sh- it's after the scene of Hori freaking out. We then go back into one of those analysis parts where we go back a few minutes and rewatch what we just saw. And there's a lot mm-hmm. of video artifacting in this scene as he's screaming. And his, there's like these weird blue distorted frozen faces in the artifact that shows. Yes. But the main thing that fucked with me in this scene is that his screams and yells are being time manipulated. And so they're just getting stretched out into these like, like just like fucked up noises as it keeps zooming in on these artifacts and these uh-huh. faces and demon things. And I'm sitting in a dark room by myself, just creeped out, man. It's super uncomfortable to listen to it for too long. And I feel like the movie pulls it to almost to the point of being too long. But it's like, um, uh, for me, the the best example is the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre when uh, she is just screaming and screaming like I have to turn it down. It becomes way too much and I get like overloaded. I can't handle that much flat screaming. And that's this movie does the same thing with like some of these scenes. I think a lot of times, well, especially session, I, I think um, 
oftentimes I'm more afraid of sound than I am by what my ears or eyes or what my eyes are picking up. I think the, yeah. the sounds of things are what really creep me out and get me those goosebumps. Yeah, it's it hits it like the the primeval part of my brain uh, and can get my it gets me going in a way that like the visuals don't because the visuals I can figure out where they made something, you know, Oh, they cut it like this to show that the ax doesn't actually go in the face. The kind of things. Oh, I stopped talking ready to take a drink. Fantastic. What? Nothing. Go on. Oh, okay. Uh, so Kabayashi is basically just given a general direction that looks like northeast. <laughs> so he <laughs> just starts going northeast in a vague direction, searching for this building. And um, I don't quite remember how we get to this part, but this is where we jump into Marika has been sleepwalking and has been tying weird knots. Yeah. Um, they set up a camera to record her at night while she's sleeping. Uh and the next day they find an extension cord on her balcony that's been tied into a series of these loops. And it's a very specific way that, like, the yarn in her house has been looped. Um, and this is one of those things where if you go back through the earlier footage, you can see it in um, some of the stuff that we've already been shown, but they don't call attention to it yet. Uh, but it's get- just those little building blocks of the world. Do you get paranormal activity vibes off of this scene? Oh, when she's sleepwalking? Yeah. With the, with the night vision on? Yeah, totally. And this came out two years before that. I mean, I think, from what I know of paranormal activities, production was that that movie had been filmed long before it ever got its release. So I think mm-hmm. it's just a happy accident. But uh, it was funny to see, like, oh, this two-minute segment of this movie is creepy where this woman is walking around her room sleepwalking. What if we extrapolated that to 84 minutes? Right. Right. (laughs) Which, Paranormal Activity was still the scariest theatrical experience I've ever had. Seeing that movie at midnight when it was in very limited release across the country, and I I was going in pretty much completely blind, just I knew that it was a hyped movie. And people said, go see it, it's scary. And that was it. So sitting yeah. in that theater, it was a full theater at midnight. You could just feel the tension in the room. And every time that it would just cut to a night scene, and it would, night 18, night 22, you could feel right. people, like, gripping the armrests. And then that bass sound would slowly, like, as the ghost started to come around. Oh, it was cool. It was really cool. <laughs> I, I awesome. tried rewatching it, and it does not, does not hold up for me. At all. But, no. but that experience in theater was kick-ass. Yeah, my buddy Cameron, like, implored me to watch it, but he had seen it in a theater with a bunch of people who were gasping the whole time, and I watched it at home uh, playing a, on a DVD from my laptop, and it wasn't nearly the same. Uh, no, because especially with that movie, when you have a theatrical screen in front of you, on those stationary shots at night, you don't know if the scare is coming from under the bed or from down the hallway or from the corner of the room. And your eyes can't take all of that in at once in a theater. So you have to actively be scanning around the screen with your eyes. Whereas when you watch on a smaller screen, you're able to keep everything inside your main cone of vision. You're, nothing's in your periphery, really. And so I think that's 
kind of the downfall of watching that movie at home versus the theater experience. You know, I kind of get that vibe from watching your cam here when we record, because I can see all the way down your hallway. Yeah, you and... can see like, all the way to the end of my... Yeah, that's, that's my bedroom down there. Yeah. Like, and I see your dogs walk past once in a while. And uh, just if anybody ever comes down there, I'll give you a warning, but you're pretty much screwed at that point. You know what? Now that I'm looking at me, <laughs> looking at myself, looking down my hallway, uh-huh. I, I'm kind of creeping myself. <laughs> <laughs> and it's 12.22 p.m. On, on a Wednesday. but <laughs> That's when the real horror will get you. That's the thing. <laughs> So, um, so while they're at Marika's house, um, they keep hearing banging. It's kind of banging sound. Mm-hmm. So they go upstairs, and it's her neighbor who works at some ad agency or something, and she has no idea what they're talking about um, when they ask her if she's heard any banging. And then after this, I don't remember who the pigeon guy is, but they go to the pigeon guy's house. Yes. And he has a bunch of garbage on his balcony, which he seems to be using as bait to attract pigeons. And we see him walk out and just grab a pigeon off of the banister. And I'm, this looked very real. I mean, it looked like he wasn't hurting the bird. But still, I, I have real concerns when I see real animals being used in movies, you know? Yeah, and the amount of pigeons in this movie... Um... I really wonder what the behind the scenes looked like because the movie feels like it's just one guy out there with a handy cam recording it. Uh, but clearly like they had set dressing for all the trash that was out there and uh, the loops of rope and stuff that are hanging around uh, again. Man. So they had to have a pigeon trainer. Yes. I think a lot of this movie's budget was on a pigeon guy. <laughs> uh, so I hopefully, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't think they'd, you never see any violence happen to animals. I think everything is... All the dead pigeons we see, I'm guessing, are just dolls and stuff. I hope. Yeah. Um, and um, so, yeah, they see him grab that guy, and then we just get a title card or something that's um, a few days later. That pigeon guy, he vanishes too. So basically everybody yep. who um, Kobayashi's coming into contact with is either dying or vanishing. And the pigeon guy lived in the building that Hori Ori had directed them to with his crude drawing. Um, it was the, the closest match they could find was this building. And the ectoplasmic worms were coming out of his apartment. So they've got something to do with it. What do they have? I, I, I don't quite know. There's a lot of things that... I, I don't either. I have no idea what's going on with some aspects of this movie, and that's actually completely fine with me. <laughs> I, I think I know what the ectoplasmic worms are, and they'll come into play later, uh, and it's really gross. Uh, but, oh, um, uh, oh, I think I just connected it. Yeah. Oh, that's, is it oh. the real bummer thing in this movie? Yes, it oh, is. No, the big bummer. I think you're right. Oh, yeah. that, oh, man, this movie just got a lot darker. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> so so they find this strange sound on the tape where the actress was sleepwalking. Um, and she says it's the same voice that she heard the night at the shrine. Uh, and it's someone saying Kagetuba 
So when I heard this um, and they were listening to it, mm-hmm. I was like, please, please go back to the sound guy, please. And then they hard cut. Yes. And there he is in front of the spectrograph again. I was like, yes, two sound analysis scenes in one movie. This kicks ass. <laughs> I love technical stuff like that, you know, and like stuff that actually looks like realistic in the real world where you can see right. him taking just the background noise off and stuff. I don't know. It's something about it just scratches that itch for me. It's, I love this next little sequence where it's just Kobayashi like calling people and trying to do interviews to find the meaning of this word Kagutaba. And it's just like, I think he pulls um, some stuff out of archives and he's on the phone and he's looking frustrated and it's just like doing the footwork of putting uh, this film together and you get to see the behind the scenes of it almost. It's really great. Um, yeah. And so he's calling a bunch so of he, scholars and then one of the scholars says that finally one person seems to know what he's talking about. And he said that there's a, mm-hmm. a local village nearby that was basically destroyed when a dam was created and the entire village was wiped out flooded by um by the creation of this dam but before that they had a demon ritual and the demon was called kagutaba and this demon they had sorcerers in the village and the sorcerers would use dogs in their rituals and pigeons and essentially what it seemed to me was that they would get kagutaba to kill their enemies but then one time kagutaba disobeys and starts acting on his own free will its own free will yes and at this and then we find that the sorcerer somehow is able to lock it deep underground but they have to do this this ritual this pacification ritual every so often to keep it um pacified to keep it uh at bay apparently and kobayashi goes to find out more about the town and the ritual uh and this is where we get some 16 millimeter footage of the last time the ritual was ever performed, uh, which is really, it's cool in and of itself. Like just the idea, it's kind of like going to the sound spectrum guy. Like I was excited to see them incorporate this footage. Uh, but then you find out it's also more of the plot because the ritual goes fine until the woman who's portraying the demon Kagutaba starts screaming uncontrollably and falls over and looks like she's having some sort of episode. Uh, and I think the way that it's done and the way that that reveal happens is really great in the movie. Yeah. I think the ceremony's cool. It's, it's a little bit of a dance. And again, we see the Kagutaba mask, which is the same drawing that the girl did early on. It's this image that keeps popping up and it's kind of the, it's the scary image of the movie is Mm -hmm. this mask, this Kagutaba face. And so the ritual is that the priest or she, the priest has to bow and clap his hands four times and bow again, and then use the sickle to to cut the ribbon. And yeah, at that point, she loses her mind, and people believe that she's actually become possessed um, by Kagutaba itself. And um, so after this, Kobayashi goes to, I guess what we're calling a local historical researcher. Okay. And who tells him that, like, the last one was in 78... Uh, villagers keep uh, sickles above their doors and sorcerers use dogs in their rituals and um, uh, might have been recapping a little bit 
And, and the the woman playing Kagutaba in the the drama that they put on uh, was the daughter of the priest. And the priest and his wife have died, but the daughter is still alive. So Kobayashi and his cameraman head to the daughter's house uh, to ask her what has happened. And this is where they find, um, once again, there's a bunch of trash outside. Uh, there's hundreds of these ropes that have the coils and loops, just like um, Marika was making. And uh, there's stuff written all over the side of the house that look like the same symbols that Kana was doodling earlier. Um, and Marika was actually making as well. Yeah, so I, I think these are really kind of cool nuts. They're not very traditional nuts at all. It's not, it's not something as simple as just like a, a noose imagery or something. It's it's like a complex knot. Or it's a a, a, series, a series of linked circles, which mm -hmm. I don't know if you think about all of these curses being passed down again and again and again. It, it kind of works as a chain. These you know this chain of rope, uh, these chains of yeah. events that can't be broken. Um, I, I I like it, and again, what you said is just the amount of work that would have had to go in to tying three hundred of these things and then hanging them right. all over this house and stuff. It's a quick exterior shot; they're not out there for very long, but it's well worth it. Yeah, and it's great because like the way that it kind of obscures the house and everything that you're trying to see. Uh, I think it just works; it adds to the spookiness as well. I mean. It, let alone the fact that if you came upon this, you would freak out. Like, it would be weird to see it in person. Oh, this would definitely be that creepy haunted house in the village that, like, all the kids are <laughs> mm -hmm. terrified of. Uh, so, yeah, uh, Kobayashi goes up and knocks on the door, and we see once again that Junko Ishii answers the door in almost the identical way as before, where she yells, how can you talk to me like that? Yes. With, like, the same level of intensity, and it's almost a carbon copy of their previous interaction, which I find to be really unsettling. Yeah. And she like goes straight for the cameraman. Um, we never actually meet the cameraman or see him. Uh, his, but his she... name is, uh, fuck, uh, Miyajima. Okay. Yeah. But yes, the, you're correct. He, he he's talks a, to him sometimes. He's barely, we're barely even aware of his presence until kind of the last half last third of this movie is kind of where he starts to actually do things but up until this point yes. he's been largely um passive so uh jinko's neighbors claim this is the it's the small town this is where everyone in the town that got flooded moved to when they built the dam so this town as they go through it there's dogs at every house, every house has a sickle hanging above the door to ward off the demon, kind of like a like a horseshoe hanging above the door, is supposed to bring you good luck. Um, and one of the neighbors, uh, I think one of the neighbors won't even talk to them. Um, a couple of them say that Jinko is uh, she's acts weird or she's been weird since the ritual, um, and that perhaps she was possessed by the demon. And they find out that. When she had left the town for a while, Jinko had attended a nursing school and worked as a nurse. Um, and this is where they find out what kind of nurse she was and where she worked at, which is... Yeah, she's, uh, she's worked made, at an abortion. Made my gut churn. Yeah, she's 
working at an abortion clinic and they say they do abortions up to what, the 22nd week or something so that's late yes. second trimester which i think is about the limit of timeline in in the united states i i, I haven't yes i don't remember it you know but um and they say the really creepy part of this is that they say that she's taking the embryos home with her yeah there was a rumor that she took them home and that's the part that made my gut churn because it was it puts you on edge enough to find out that it was an abortion clinic because this possessed woman working at an abortion clinic just seems like a bad mix. <laughs> yes. I 100% agree with you. The Kobayashi, um, he brings Marika to stay with him and his wife, correct? Um, in a second, first we find out that Marika's neighbor that they interviewed uh, committed suicide. Along with uh, six other people in a public park. Oh, yeah. I had, yeah, right after. Um, yes, seven people and, on a swing hung themselves. Yes. And one creepy thing is, again, you see the drawing of the rope in the diagram of how they hung themselves, where you see the linked rope where it looks like a chain. Um, again, another red herring that doesn't turn out to be a red herring, but it's it comes back later. Yep. And uh, one of the other people was the pigeon man uh, who they found earlier living at uh, the house that was being attacked by the ectoplasmic worms. So whenever he went missing, he was gone for however many days and then winds up dead in this park. So, and I think the authorities are kind of like, uh, they show some news footage and it looks like it's being really sensationalized. And Kobayashi is the only one who knows that all this stuff is connected. And that's when he invites the actress, uh, to stay at his house to be looked after by his wife, which seems like he's asking his wife for a lot at that point. Uh, yeah, this guy likes to bring home lonely children. Because that's what, yes. that's what, he's just it's like they're stray cats or something. Kobayashi's just out there collecting them like Angelina Jolie. <laughs> um, this really like starts ratcheting up and like, I think in a normal movie, you'd get some kind of um, building of the soundtrack and the cutting would come faster. But here, since it's like played like a documentary, it's just all delivered to you all at once, kind of. Um, because the there's the hanging in the park. Um, we find out that Junko also lived next to the pigeon man before he killed himself. And then there's a news report that tells us that uh, Kana's parents have been in a tragedy where. Uh, Kana's father killed her mother and she is still missing. Yes. And it's kind of all hits you one, two, three. Boom, boom, boom. Yes. Very fast. And yeah, we find out that Pigeon Guy was neighbors with Junko Ishii and he said the baby was too loud, but she didn't have a baby. And yes, lots of, lots of stuff happening very fast, which is why <laughs> we then <laughs> change it up just a little bit when Marika cooks spaghetti. And I have, I'm very, I have a lot of questions about this dish that she cooks. Yeah. She says she makes spaghetti with, like, bolognese sauce, but I'm not seeing mm -hmm. any sauce on it. However, I am seeing open clams and fresh basil on spaghetti noodles, which I yes. thought to be a very interesting combination. I, it's probably good. 
But I've never seen spaghetti look like that oh, yeah. before. I've had dishes with, like, uh, open mussels, uh, you know, steamed, laid on top of the spaghetti. Ah, okay. Uh, also, this is yeah. just me showing my myopic ignorance. Uh, they use Tabasco in Japan. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. <laughs> Apparently, they, later, is that what they're eating on their eggs as no, well? No, that... I, I, we'll talk about the omelets later, okay? <laughs> Let's okay. not jump ahead. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so Marika serves her friend food, and then all of a sudden she walks in about three steps, just stands, tilts her head, and starts moaning, looking at the ceiling. <laughs> she collapses, and pigeons just start suicide bombing the window and crashing into it. And again, this movie's really ramping up. Yes. Um... They go to uh, Hori to show him the tape, the new tape of Junko Ishii attacking the cameraman, and he freaks out. Um, and uh, Marika decides that she wants to go to the site of the flooded village uh, to try to do the ritual to pacify the demon. Um, and they invite the super psychic to come along. Um, Hori is supposed to be some kind of protection. Since he can see the ectoplasmic worms, uh, they think that he will offer them some sort of uh, warning if something's going down, I think. You see, at this moment, Kobayashi really seems to be kind of taking the father role for her, where he tries to tell her, like, listen, you stay here, I'll go out there, I'll do the ritual, and, you know, I'll I'll put myself at risk or whatever. And she says, no, I feel I I need to be the one to, to perform the ritual. And so I, <laughs> there's something that just really made me giggle about seeing the two of them go out on a little rowboat, just a, <laughs> just a little dinghy that he rows out, and she's wearing the biggest, fluffiest white gloves I've ever seen. They look, uh huh. They make her hands look like Mickey Mouse's hands or something. I I. I I don't know what these gloves are, but they fascinate me. She looks like she's going to do a Land's End catalog shoot or something. Like, she's out here to, to beat a demon, and she looks like straight out of an L.L. Bean catalog. Yeah, but it also looks like those gloves would keep your hands warm in negative 15 degree weather. And it, it looks like a nice, pleasant, like, 62 degrees out there on that lake or something. Yeah. So I had I had questions about the climates in both of these movies, because in session nine, um, Brendan Sexton is wearing like a big puffy vest at one point, uh, and the other guys are walking around just in shirt sleeves uh, well, and you can see their breath. And it's, I was it's, it's Massachusetts, so it's either super fucking hot or super fucking cold. Right. <laughs> I, I don't know. Is that how Massachusetts works? I don't know. I've been there in the summer. When it was fairly pleasant, kind of uh, out a couple hours away from where Danvers was, but yeah. Oh, yeah, I've never been there. Maybe one day I'll get to go visit Justin in Boston or something. Hey, I'm Quincy. <laughs> I, shouldn't, I shouldn't do accents on this show. I'm terrible at them. <laughs> so, um, uh, Marika is out on the boat. She performs the ritual. She cuts the sash. And she immediately like looks relieved, says she feels better, lighter. Kobayashi's really happy and seems stoked. And then Mr. Hori starts freaking out back on the dam and starts screaming at them that they need to get out of there. Uh, the worms are coming, etc., etc. 
So I thought this was really cool because Kobayashi takes a camera and his cameraman takes a camera and Kobayashi is out on the boat. They row to the spot above where the, the ritual would have taken place. They kind of try to figure out where the shrine was and anchor above that to do the ritual. So you're getting him shooting close-ups of Marika in the boat and you're getting um, the cameraman back on the shore. And when shit starts to go down, they shoot towards each other. So when you see Mr. Hori freaking out, you get like this really long shot of him from the middle of the reservoir uh, running up and down the bridge uh, or the dam rather um, telling them to come back. And it makes it feel like they're so far away from safety. Like they're just cast out into the middle of this reservoir. Uh, And that freaked me out a little bit. I mean, big bodies of water freak me out. So this whole little sequence made me my skin crawl. Yeah, it makes complete sense, especially because he's freaking out, like, get out of the water, get out of the water. And it's like, okay, it's going to take us six minutes to slowly meanderly like paddle this this boat back to the shore as this guy's freaking like, could you imagine how long that rowing must have felt it took to get out of that water? Um, so, so yeah, this is also, that was like the first time that, um, our, our cameraman and Kobayashi have essentially split up and it's been obvious that there's actually two men creating this documentary. Yes. Until then, until now, the camera has been, as we said before, really passive. Yep. Um, uh, but from then, here on out, it gets very active. <laughs> yeah. Because Hori freaks out and... Ori runs off into the forest, and this is where we split. And so Kobayashi, the sun is setting, and Kobayashi runs off with Ori, and he says, um, tell, tell the cameraman to get Marika, put her in the car, and stay with her. But then, of course, as the sun starts setting, <laughs> Marika starts doing her, held, her head tilt groan. Ori's still running in the forest, which means that Kobayashi has been chasing him for what seems like a good hour as they run as it gets because yeah. it was light when they started this chase and it is pitch black by the time they conclude this chase through the forest yeah they mentioned the sun is going to go down soon but it still looks like you're maybe at six o'clock in the afternoon or something or in the evening uh when they start running yeah and so ori and kobayashi come across a bunch of dead dogs in the field then they find a field that i think hori calls a magic field where it's it's a border tied of string to a bunch of trees with a bunch of like pigeon body parts and shit attached to it and then in the middle there's just another pile of dead dogs (laughs) and kobayashi's gonna maybe go in there and hori's like do not fucking go in there whatever you do (laughs) and this is it's intercut with uh Marika freaking out in the car being driven by the cameraman and she jumps out of the car and she runs off into the woods wherever they are and the cameraman heads after her. Yeah. And um, um Yeah, so we have that and then there's a collapsed building near um Kobayashi and they think that maybe Kana's in there or something and this is also where he sees that these seem to be like ancient buildings because there's a stone with what essentially look like runes scratched into the stone. And it was the same diagram that 
um, Kana had been drawing earlier in the movie. Mm-hmm. And then after this, and sorry, go ahead. I say this is when uh, something happens and the light on Kobayashi's camera goes out and he switches it to night vision mode for a few seconds. And this is where we see the horrifying thing to me for the first time, uh, which is kind of underneath the, the upright posts of this shrine. Um, you see what look like dozens of fetuses with uh, the Noroi, the Kagutaba face, crawling all over each other. Crawling on Kana. Was that Kana? Who was that? Yes, I think that's supposed to be Kana. Um, you, I think we've, you find out later that it's supposed to be Kana. At first, all I can take in is all these little embryos crawling all over in the sounds this, okay. coming from them. Again, it's, it's not quite the visuals in this part that scare me. It's the sounds, uh-huh. and it's not the sounds of multiple babies. It's the sounds of multiple babies that sound like they've been put through some kind of computer robotic Uh filter or something and so they just it just sounds wrong and it it just struck me to the core of like fuck this is unsettling and especially because before Uh and after that shot you get about three seconds of darkness as he's switching over to night vision and then as he switches off to night vision and this is the only we only have two night vision shots in this whole movie so it's not like this is a setup that oh we're gonna get to a night vision part it's been the still shot in her right. bedroom, and now this. So it's it's a really shocking moment. And uh, as soon as that ends, it cuts back to the cameraman catching up with Marika, and she's just on the ground yelling. She's um, we don't know where she is, where they are in the woods, uh, but then she comes to her senses and seems to be totally fine. Which yeah. is just Hori is not though. Mori is losing his mind next to the shrine. Yes. Yeah. So Marika wakes up and she's like, oh, what's going on? Why why am I in the woods? This is weird. And uh, so this is a great thing, again, as you said, about normally a horror movie would have to then resolve this scene. Whereas in this movie, we're just going to cut to the next day and Kobayashi has taken them both to the hospital. And now he's at Junko Ishii's house. Yeah. And we're we're just we're moving. You know, there's no need to bring closure to all of these scenes. We can just keep it moving cuz yep. this isn't this movie's an hour and 50 something minutes, but there's a lot of stuff in here. It's surprising. Yeah, and it feels like every little bit of it. It seems like we're going over in detail. It's because every little bit plays into the plot so well and so tightly that that's just how it's constructed. Yes, I I once again, I'm I'm never uh, ceased to be amazed by how long you and I can talk about movies that I really feel I don't have more than 10 minutes of things to say about them. <laughs> so Kobayashi breaks into Junko Ishii's house and um this we see that there's dead dog and the and everything is fucking trashed and TV is smashed, there's trash everywhere, there's a dead dog, there's pigeons eating the dead dog on the lower floor. And then he climbs a ladder, it looks like, to a loft or a second floor. And that's where we see that uh, Junko Ishii's dead, she's hung herself. There's Kagutaba masks everywhere and hanging pigeons and shit. 
And there's also uh, two kids in this room. Yeah, they're, and it feels like um, a Resident Evil game in this little section where it's like he kind of comes through the curtain of all of these looped ropes that are, that are hanging down and they focus on uh, Junko's feet, like hanging above the ground uh, in the way that they like show her hanging from the rafters and then that her feet aren't touching the ground. It's just horrifying. And then um, he Kobayashi goes behind a desk where uh, Junko's son, question mark, uh, is hiding with Kana, who is cold. Her body is cold at this point. Yeah, which was not obvious to me that that meant she was dead. <laughs> yeah, it's, I was holding out hope because, like, they say, oh, she's cold. But in the next scene, you get her being take, carried out, not even, like, on a stretcher. She's, like, being carried out by a person, which yeah. is just so sad. And Especially, they have, like, a close-up on her dead face. I mean, mm-hmm. you can't tell, but still, there's a a dead child in this movie, and they are not shying away from it in the slightest. Uh, this next scene perplexes me. So, yes, you say uh, Kobayashi gets the boy out of the house, and they call the police. And the police come. The police roll out this yellow mat on the floor that goes from like down where the ambulance is up to the house mm-hmm. and it looks like a yellow rubber mat and i can't figure out if that's so that when they're walking down that little hill nobody loses their grip and falls or if that's like to keep their shoes clean as they go in and out of a crime scene i've never seen it they rolled out a yellow carpet to go yeah. to the crime scene I've never seen anything like it before i've seen um i don't remember in what movie uh, or TV show, but I've seen like sticky mats placed outside of the room, like a crime scene room, uh, to clean off the bottom of their shoes when they're coming mm-hmm. in and out. Um, so, but this, it's like also outside, so it seems like it would just get dirt and stuff on it from that. I'm very perplexed by it. If, if any of our listeners know <laughs> what those, what the Japanese police are doing with those yellow rugs, please let me know. Um, so after this, yeah, we get a headline that says, The boy assumed to be Ishii's child isn't hers, and Kobayashi adopts the kid. Yep. And so once again, Kobayashi is just kind of bringing stray humans back home to his wife and telling her to take care of them. And this, Josh, is where we get our omelet scene. Yes. So, we get home home video of Kobayashi and his new uh, newly adopted son, um... He's filming, trying to ask him some questions about what happened with Junko. So this omelet, for one, it looks like a four-egg omelet. It's a big omelet. It's, yes, it's very large. Now, it's covered in what I believe to be ketchup. Really? I don't know if Japanese eat people eat ketchup, though. Okay. Again, this shows how myopic and ignorant I am, that I know nothing. (laughs) And so I'm asking questions. I'm not making assumptions here. Yeah. Yeah, over top of both of the omelets that we see, like, drizzled over the top is red sauce of some kind. But it's a lot of ketchup. Like, I've had ketchup on my omelet before, but this is, like, a lot, a lot of ketchup. And then we see that... There's veggies. It's maybe like a broccoli cheddar omelet or something that this kid's eating. 
and he's eating it with a spoon, which fascinated me. Yeah. Because then I start to think about an omelet, and it's like, why a spoon works just as well as a fork mm-hmm. to eat an omelet? I don't, I don't know why Big Fork has taken all egg game <laughs> away from Big Spoon, you know? <laughs> so, um, that, that's the end of my omelet analysis. We can go back to doing serious all right. uh, academical research. So the boy does not answer any of the questions. He just remains silent. Uh, We see Marika. She says that she's been recovering and nothing strange has happened since the ritual. That seems to be the end of it. Uh, Yeah, she looks great. Everything's normal. Nothing supernatural has happened. Um, Ori has been committed to a hospital. And then we get a scene where... Um, Kobayashi returns to the man who uh, showed him the footage of the film, or the footage of the the ritual. The um, local researcher is what I've yes. called. Yeah. Um, and he says that he found out more information since they talked the last time. This uh, is um, sorry, Josh. This is where the movie turns into a real bummer. Yes, because I mean. The, the fetuses crawling all over each other was was pretty bad, and a dead kid pretty bad. But this is this is where it really ratchets up. Uh-huh. Uh huh. He says on this scroll that he found, um, Kagutaba was first summoned by. Oh God, baby monkeys were fed to a medium to talk to and summon the demon. And Junko Ishii tried to replicate this by feeding the stolen fetuses to Kana. Yeah. Ugh. There it is. Ugh. There it is. And that is your ectoplasmic worm? Yeah, I think, th- I think that's what the, the oh, fetuses man, are. Oh man, jeez, I, I did not connect those two things until we started talking, but it... Oh, that's bad. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, moving on, Kobayashi hopes that the curse has been contained, but as Ishii is dead, he says he'll, he will never know the truth, which then right. ties back to that first title card of all, all it says in capital letters is, I want the truth. And so he's basically admitting that. And eh, not this time. And it cuts back to the footage of Kana saying, I guess it's too late for all of us. And then to that night vision footage of the the fetuses and Kana standing in the middle, kind of with her voiceover saying it's too late for all of us, which is just it takes something that's viscerally gross and makes it sad, too. <laughs> yes, it's it gets me on multiple levels at that point. And now this is this is the end of Kobayashi's movie, correct? Yeah, we pull out of the documentary at this point and we kind of get the epilogue. Yeah. And so now the movie's over, and as we've found out from the beginning, Kobayashi's house burns to the ground, and his wife is killed, uh, burning to death inside. And uh, Mr. Ori had escaped from the hospital three days earlier, and he's also been found dead. Mm-hmm. And it's a month after this that um, a publishing office gets a tape labeled from Kobayashi himself. And so now we see Kobayashi's final piece of film and i did not see this ending coming no 
I didn't Did think we were. I didn't think we were going back into the movie after we came out of the movie. Right. You understand? I thought. Yeah. I thought. I thought we were done with this. So the fact that now we go back in, and what I thought we had already seen the most ratcheted part with the night vision, but no, yeah. this movie is saving one final fucking sequence <laughs> that just everything is gonna hit the fan. Everything. And from what I've seen on Letterboxd, I've read people's reviews, um, and this seems to either make or break the movie for people. People either, if you if you get in on this last sequence, I think the movie ends on such a high note, and it kicks your ass in such a good way. Um, or if you're out of it, this the, the final sequence is a step too far, and you don't buy the rest of the movie then. It breaks the rest of the movie, the reality of it, I think. I could see that. Because there is some, not silly stuff, but it's more of that thing, like, if you want to be that kind of person that watches a movie like this and then says, well, in real life, a character wouldn't keep filming and blah, blah, It's like, well, yeah, within the movie wouldn't exist. Exactly. So it's kind of, can you put those questions aside? Because if you can just give yourself over to this ending, holy shit, it's wild. (laughs) <laughs> so what Mr. Ori shows up at Kobayashi's house and he says you've been eaten by the worms and Ori says he can hear Kana's voice Kagutaba is alive and Ori is holding a rock and so Ori basically attacks Kobayashi to get into the house and then starts attacking both the boy and his wife mm-hmm. and it's a brutal assault uh, oh, on yeah, both of them yeah, he's he's hitting them with this rock in his hand, and he's yelling that the boy is Kagutaba, reincarnated. Killed, he said the boy killed Kana, and Kobayashi says the boy's a victim too. But you mm-hmm. can see this boy has almost no reaction to any of this. So it definitely seems there's something amiss with this kid. Yeah, he's got some Damien energy going so, on. So Ori takes the rock and. I, I'm gonna. This shit happens wildly. So here we go. Ori takes the rock and starts smashing the kid's face. We cut. The camera pans over for a quick second and pans back, and we see the kid has the fucking Kagutaba face for just <laughs> like two frames. That freaked me out because it's like his head is just like morphed by the rock bashing, but it's yeah. actually not. Kana is in the corner behind him as like a gray ghost. His wife starts moaning and staring at the ceiling. Ori hits Kobayashi with a rock, steals the boy. Kiko, the wife, douses herself in gasoline and burns herself as Kobayashi is screaming, trying to reach for her and reach for the camera at the same time. The end. Oh my god. (laughs) It's wild. And it's... It all happens within like forty-five seconds or a minute. At no, the I, end. I had to. I had to run through it that fast because that's that's the pace of this movie. At the very end, is here's the payoff. This whole thing, and man, it works for me. That yep. that kid having the Kagataba face. That one creeped me out a lot. <laughs> Fuck. And I love it because they don't focus on it. It really is like he catches it as the camera pans over and then he pans off and then he goes back to the boy because it's like, it would be like doing a double take. And the second time 
it's just his regular face, um, but it's been bloodied because he got hit in the top of the head with the rock. Um, but the kid is just standing there, too. Even the fact that when he goes back to him, he doesn't have the, the Kagutaba face. He's just standing there all bloody is horrifying in and of itself. He has no reaction to it, which None. makes me believe that he is the demon. Yes, I, I wholeheartedly agree with, well, I don't know if I agree with Ori trying to murder this kid, but I do agree that with Ori that the curse is not broken. Yeah. And I think that's one thing that this movie does so well is when you get an unsettling, excuse me, an unsettling ending where you're left as an audience with just a black screen and then like a, okay, mm-hmm. fuck. This movie nails that ending for me. And I totally see it's make or break because I could see so many people dismissing this last two minutes. Especially because the pace of it has been such a, a slow build and a slow burn that this feels like it comes out of left field. Um, the fact that the video cuts out and then you just get a text thing that says Kobayashi is still missing. Like, no, that's it. That is yeah. it. Yeah, because we yep. already because we already saw the end of the movie. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, man. Uh, yeah, and again, <laughs> just sitting in my dark room at like I think I watched this movie. I started it around one in the morning, so it ended around three in the morning. Oh my just god! Sitting there in my living room, just pitch black. Now it's like, oh, that. <laughs> it's a hell of a way to start my day. <laughs> Did you need a palate cleanser after that? Did you have to listen to some upbeat music or uh, put on some <laughs> cartoons or something? Uh, I don't know. To be honest with you, this might have been the day where after this, I listened to the entire Ravenous soundtrack because Oof. I have issues with that movie. And by That's issues, a mood right there. By issues, I mean I have like a weird addiction to Ravenous that doesn't seem to be going away. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, Noroi, man, the curse. Fuck yeah. I love it. Uh, solid four out of five for me as well. I'm right there with you. Yeah. And thank, um, thank you for showing, I never would have watched this. It's available on Shudder and also on YouTube. So it's, um, actually not too hard to get a hold of. No, for a long time it was, uh, out of print over here or had never been released over here. Um, but it had leaked on YouTube, so you could kind of, people would stumble across it doing YouTube deep dives, and every once in a while it would kind of bubble up in conversation um, as a, what the fuck is this thing that I found? Because if you had no other context for it, looking at it on a streaming site for horror movies is one thing. Like, you know what you're getting into. To just find it as a random video on YouTube would, ugh. Yeah, well, there's, and there's certain things in this movie that I think if I was unsuspecting, I would watch some scenes in this not knowing if it was real or not. Because like those panel scenes or the scene in the kid's classroom, a lot of these scenes are presented as if it's just a a normal Japanese TV show. And I, I don't know if I would know the difference if I didn't know this was a, not a spoof, but a mockumentary. Right. Um. Yeah, dude. Thanks. That was awesome. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Do you have any? <laughs> do you have any last things to say about it? 
No, I think, uh, I don't think it's, I don't have the cultural context to necessarily know if it's saying anything deeper than just being a good folk, like found footage folk horror type movie. Um, but I think it's a really good uh, entry in kind of both of those canons. You know, I'd be interested to watch The Wailing after I to rewatch The Wailing after seeing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very similar vibes. Now that I think about it, not not in the found footage way, but in the way of possession and exorcism and uh, folklore and myth. Um, that's a long. <laughs> the Wailing's like two and a half hours. Oh man, is it uh, the Korean? I think it's Korean. Yeah, you didn't see it. No, I have not. Ah, it's good. It definitely was one of those movies where, because I don't know the mythos, at the end of it, I had to watch a YouTube video that kind of explained some of the folklore and myths behind it for me to get a better grasp of it. But very good movie. Well, both George and Andrew have given it four stars. Uh, And Austin has it on his once-to-watch list, so it's going on my watch list. There you go. That's good enough for me. Cool. Mm -hmm. At least I'm going out. I'm no longer wearing red cargo shorts, which I used to wear when I... Is that date attire, is red cargo shorts? I'm sure I've worn them on dates. (laughs) And... Like, sometimes I'd be like, well, I'm going on a date, so I'll wear one of my, like, dressier metal band shirts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or I'll wear my, I'm wearing my Thing poster t-shirt today. What shirt are you wearing? I, all, I, all I've seen is watch. Watch more movies. Oh, look at you. Yep. Oh, UPS man. I think the UPS man is here for me. You getting something good? Uh, getting my first pair of adult overalls ever, and I'm very excited about that. I ordered some Dickies denim overalls, and I'm just excited to, like... Yeah, the... Yep, <laughs> okay! Hey, 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 hey! Hey! I don't even know how to put overalls on. You put both legs in at the same time? Yeah, I think you kind of got to jump into them almost, <laughs> don't you? This is very exciting. Especially exciting for all of our viewers to listen to me try overalls. <laughs> I have a feeling this might get edited. I just have a hunch. <laughs> okay, so I pull that strap. And I pull that strap. I feel like, no offense, like a 44-year-old mom wearing these. You know how, like, overalls are really in fashion for women, I think? Or at least they have been recently. Yeah. I feel like a mom right now. Hey! Pretty cool. I don't know how I feel about going out in public in these, but <laughs> you've got a lot of a lot of pockets. I, there's a lot. <laughs> this is another problem with my dating life: is I often look at clothing in in the 
from the view of utilitarianism. So yes. <laughs> that does not help when you're trying to meet a woman. And the only thing you can say is, well, yeah, but I have 18 pockets to hold my knife and my chapstick. and it, uh... Now, have you or would you ever wear a utility kilt? I don't know what that is, but my answer is yes. It's a hard yes. Okay. <laughs> if if you go to utilikilts.com, uh, they actually have several varieties of, they're basically like kilts with cargo pockets on them. Yeah. Yeah, I want those. Yeah. Wow. They're kind of militaristic looking. They're pretty Utility cool. Utility skirts. I hope this doesn't awaken anything in me. <laughs> and with that, Ooh, we talk about a movie where does a demon awaken in a man? Is it his own mental illness? We're about to find out because we're talking about Session 9, directed by Brad Anderson from I don't know what year because I don't have the Wikipedia. 2001. Hey, you gotta have all your stuff pulled up. Yeah, 2001. So, yeah, this is my choice. Um... This is, like I said, directed by Brad Anderson, written by Brad Anderson and Stephen Gavedin, who is one of the actors in this movie. And it is a movie that I saw when I was, I probably saw this in like 2007 or 2008, so I was about 21, 22 years old. And I think mm -hmm. this was one that, I used to read IMDb forums, which were some of the most stupid, toxic things in the world, but sometimes on movies that were small enough, you would actually find people having coherent, interesting discussions, and then people would recommend yes. movies like, oh, if you, if you liked this, or if you want something more along this vein, check this movie out. And so I think that's how I initially came across Session 9. Um, but it creeped me the fuck out. I was living in... Colorado, I watched this again at night, uh, home alone by myself, and this got under my skin to the point where like, I wanted to have some lights on as I went to sleep. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, it was one of the first shot on HD features, which I remember being a big uh, talking point back in the day, at least. I remember the first time I saw this movie, especially the first couple shots before they go inside when they're out at the driveway and then pulling up to the building. I thought mm -hmm. this movie looked so weird. Yeah. Now, watching it, it, it felt completely normalized. But back then, seeing a digital HD, I my brain just was not accustomed to it. And so this movie really stuck out to me at the time like this looks different because like you said it's hd so unlike movies that we've watched on this podcast or i think we watched something digital and i talked about 28 days later being the first digital shot mm -hmm. that i saw and those movies they look like they're shot on mini dv where there's so much um grain on the footage and everything this this movie yeah. um sparkles it it's this thing is really really clean. There's not there's like no um, graininess or artifacts or anything whatsoever. So uh, twenty eight days later it was shot on mini DV. It was a Canon XL one, um, which I used to have. Like it was maybe a f four or five thousand dollar camera uh, at the time, 
uh, I had the Canon XL1S. I think they were shot on just the the first version. Um, so, but it did shoot at 24 frames, uh, which session session nine was one of the first HD at 24 frames. Uh, and it is, I don't know if it's my perception of it at the time, but I remember it looking more digital than it did this time. Uh, or if they've done some sort of restoration or maybe just the copy that I've, that I got on iTunes was uh, upgraded in some way that it just looks better. So, yeah, I first came across this movie with just the standard quality DVD rip. And then mm-hmm. one time it was on, I had a DVR and it was playing on some direct TV channel or some, some movie channel. I don't remember, but they broadcast it in HD. And so I was like, holy shit, this is like my chance to get an HD version of this. Cause the only other thing out was, blu-rays or not blu-rays excuse me dvds back then dvds and so i had this movie on my dvr for years (laughs) and yeah this time i i got a 1080p copy and it looks it looked wonderful honestly and it did not look as weird as i had recalled there are certain scenes where they're outside and the grass the the saturation on the grass looks like super super green and there's like mm-hmm. some high contrast shots that look a little um, stylized, I would say. But overall, mm-hmm. it, it did not feel nearly as jarring to me. I, I didn't. My brain didn't need any time to get used to the feel of this this time around. Right. Uh, Blue Ruin, I think, was another one we watched that was shot thank, on digital. Thank you. That was the one. Yeah, I knew we had yeah. done something. Um. So, I got super into this movie so i might be relying on the um my wikipedia finds a little bit more because <laughs> i kept forgetting to take notes that's fine i, I got I, so sucked into it i can do i can guide us pretty well i've seen this many times so this movie um, is a short or a small cast so let's just go through them real quick we got mm-hmm. uh david caruso and peter mullen as our two leads essentially um brennan sexton uh, Stephen Gavedin and Josh Lucas are our three other guys on the crew. And that's pretty much it. They wrap up the movie. There's the... <laughs> Did you watch CSI? Because that's all I know the yes. guy from. He's Brass from CSI. Yep. <laughs> He's in the first couple minutes of this movie. Um, but we'll, we'll talk about Peter Mullen later, but let's... Uh, I. I'd kind of like to talk a minute about Caruso because this is one of his. When did Caruso make his break from TV to movies? Because it it was around this time, was it not? Um, it was a couple years earlier, and it was a big story at the time because he was on a uh, successful TV show. Uh, he had he done was on some NY- movies. NYPD Blue. Yes. And uh, had won a Golden Globe for it. So he left the show um, like in the second or third season, I want to say. Like, can you hear my cat? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hopkins, stop. Um, did did um, he leave to do Jade? Was that the movie? I believe so. I think that was the movie. Oh, that's a weird one. Yeah, he, he left in like 94. And he was in two films in 95, Kiss of Death and Jade. Okay. Um, it did not work out for him, the movie 
thing. No. Now. No, every, everyone thought he had too big of a head and like, you know. Having said that. Bit off more than he could chew. I enjoy his performance in this movie. Oh, yeah. I think. And. I, I really think he and Peter Mullen play off each other actually quite well. Um, he brings a level and he is, uh, the birth of a famous gif is in this movie as yeah. well, uh, due to Caruso's performance and, and a well-timed camera move. It's, we'll, <laughs> we'll get to that. Cause I, I have some questions for you about that. <laughs> um, but other than that, I think, uh, I, it's funny, Brendan Sexton watching this again. He's a little bit of the comic relief being the dumb nephew who's the stoner kid with the mullet. I think he's really entertaining and does a great job. And the only other thing I can ever remember seeing him in was very briefly in three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Oh, see, for me, he goes back to he was uh, in Welcome to the Dollhouse which was one of the first kind of indie movies that I was into. Uh, and that same year, he was in Empire Records, where he played Warren Beatty. Empire, of course, Empire Records, yeah. Of course, yes. yeah. And it basically, I do like to think that this is kind of that same character. <laughs> yes, but exactly. Um, so yeah, if, if you want to just get into it, we can... Well, I did want to point out, uh, at the very end, we get one more character that comes in. Uh, for basically a scene or a scene and a half, uh, played by Larry Fessenden, who um, is uh, an actor who's been in a bunch of horror movies uh, and actually is the founder of a um, production company called Glass Eye Picks. Uh, So he's been in a whole bunch of stuff. He was in uh, Jacob's Wife with Barbara Crampton just this last year, uh, which I would recommend. He was in The Dead Don't Die a couple years ago. Uh, he's like independent horror filmmaker's best friend. Um, And he has made some really good movies as well. Oh, he was the neighbor in your next. Ah, yes. In Stakeland. Okay. I've seen him in a few things. His filmography is stunning. When you see how many things he's been in as an actor, that's awesome. So he's just the champion of the genre, huh? Yeah. Um, he's got, Two films of his that I would recommend that he uh, directed would be Habit, which is a um, he stars in it. It's a vampire film, but seen through the lens that it's like an addiction. Um, And he also did The Last Winter, uh, which had Ron Perlman in it um, back in 2006. So kind of a mid period Ron Perlman uh, performance as well. and that one's great kind of uh, ecological horror. But those are both movies that I like a lot. Uh, yeah, I'll have to check one of those out. I think looking at his other... I, I'm, I watched that show Fear Itself, so I must have seen his episode, mm-hmm. but I really don't remember much from that series. I think Brad Anderson directed an episode of that show as well. So look at that. I think Tying it back did. together. I think he directed one about like a cannibal <laughs> in a jail. If I, off the top of my head, if I'm remembering correctly, I didn't know if you want to get into this now or later. But the basis of this film, the story that it, that it comes from, um, did you look in, into that at you all? You know, I watched 
I've watched this with commentary and the deleted scenes about eight years ago. So I know some of the stuff, mm-hmm. but no, I don't I don't know what you're talking about. So please tell me. Okay. So this is kind of spoilers for where the story goes, but there's a uh a true life real crime story that this was based on of a man who burnt a ZD and got into an argument with his wife and then killed her. Uh and he then went to work like nothing what, had happened. Where did you say he burnt a ZD? He burnt what, a ZD. What does that mean? A pasta dish. Ex- I, I, he, he overcooked I, I a pasta dish. Which what led to word a are you saying? Led to a fight. ZD? ZD? What is ZD? that? How do you spell ZD? this? Z-I-T-I? I- it's honestly, I thought you were just he, throwing some kind of like weird new <laughs> slang phrase at me. Like he burnt a ZD and he had to, he was on the lamb. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> he had to hightail it out of there. <laughs> no, it's, it's like, um, it's like a lasagna. It's like a casserole made with like circular, uh, noodles and stuff. I flat. understand lasagna and casserole. Those are words I know. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I, all right. So back to this very serious thing. He killed his wife yes. and then went to work. Yes. This happened in uh, Boston uh, near where Brad Anderson grew up. Um, and he credits this with kind of the basis of the story. Uh, it was a guy named Richard Rosenthal. Um, and there's a great article on birth movies, death, uh, RIP that, details um the connections between the movie and the true life uh crime story wow cool i'm gonna have to check that out and get that link from you later mm-hmm. maybe we could put that in the show notes or something do we have show notes oh show notes would be good we should do show notes <laughs> we have a dis oh yeah I we have a discord now I, I made a discord so i think we'll put the link to it in the show notes I don't know how Discord works. I don't know. If you can find it, you're in. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so let's get into it. So session nine. um, This movie, off the very fucking bat from the first scene, scares me. From the opening shot. And it's not even that. It's the music. And it's not music. It's by a group called Climax Golden Twins. And they're an experimental music band mm-hmm. from Seattle. And what they said is basically that Brad Anderson asked them to make a bunch of spooky noises. And so that's essentially what this is. And so you get this soundtrack scares the fuck out of me <laughs> because it's, it's <laughs> pianos that like aren't quite tuned to each other and weird record scratches and pops and weird swiveling sounds and just all of these ominous brooding dark ambient sounds that just they they feel like they encapsulate the the location so this starting shot we're just upside down in the hallway and we see like the iconic chair at the end of the hallway and the light from the doorway and the camera slowly rotates clockwise until we get oriented properly as the title card pops up. And I love the title cards in this movie, that they use that label look. Yes. It looks like um, an old uh, label maker 
uh, made it. Uh, Looks very three-dimensional. so well. And so right off the bat, just having this establishing shot in this hallway, slowly rotating over as we're hearing this, it, it puts me on edge in a way that, like, I don't know if there's any other movies that have scared me this fast. Well, and I saw a lot of comparisons between this and The Shining, um, between the dissonant score, the titling of the days, um, a lot of the one-point perspective uh, camera shots kind of down those long hallways, um, and the dissolve cuts uh, as well kind of being called out as as hallmarks between the two. That's really good, because I've never put that together. Yeah. That completely holds up. Oh, yeah. And I feel like if those are the footsteps he's walking in, it's not as grand of a picture as The Shining, but it's definitely in that that same chilling kind of uh, space. Yeah, and there's, as we'll see, there's a lot of parallels between Gordon and Jack as the movie. Wow. Mm -hmm. Hey, I like that a lot. That's really good. Yeah. So we start in this movie. Um, after this, we get a shot of Gordon sitting in the driver's seat of his van. And you hear the sounds of the radio and you hear David Caruso, but just barely audible. And in this first scene, especially, the bird mix is really high. Mm-hmm. And so it's just dumping these ambient sounds. And you can just tell that this guy, as he's sitting in his driver's seat, is so fucking detached from everywhere that he's at right now, that he's just in his own world, uh, whether due to exhaustion. Yes. Um, Peter Mullen, I'm, I'm going to try to not just fanboy over his performance the entire episode, because <laughs> it'll get old. But my God, this is one of my all-time horror performances. I, I think Peter Mullen is amazing. I've, see, I've sought his work. I've seen many things that he's done, and he's pretty much incredible in everything I've seen him in. I have to say like the, the realness kind of the grounded nature that he brings to this role, because it could be a real out there kind of performance and it would tip your hand way too early as to what happens in the movie. Um, I think he does a great job of seeming concerned with all this like mundane stuff that's happening and having the weight of, uh, all of these guys that are working for him, their continued employment rests on him. His, his whole company rests on pulling off this job. And you feel that just the way that he carries himself and the way that he interacts with everybody, it seems like he's got the weight of the world on his shoulders. It's, it's a small business and he's struggling with a new baby at home and getting outbid by what seems to be a larger company or getting undercut on bids. Mm -hmm. Um, it seems like he's just barely treading water. And um, so I, I do like at this intro, we basically have two cop slash security characters who are our exposition dumpers. And basically, mm-hmm. I do like every movie like this that's filmed in a place like this does seem to it needs to convey the information somehow of what is this location? What's the history of this place? Um and so this did feel realistic to me of like, this is a good way to fit in all this exposition is to have this be this asbestos crew's first time showing up at this place. And so they need somebody to tell them the entire history so they know what age the building is, you know, how old the rooms are. You know, they need a lot of information. Right. And 
uh, it does. Like, I do question a little bit, like if you lived in the area, you would know about Danvers because uh, Danvers State Hospital, Danvers Lunatic Asylum, as it was known in less enlightened times. Um, it's the basis for H.P. Um, Lovecraft's Arkham Sanatorium from the thing on the doorstep. It's the first time it was introduced as Arkham, um, which is then in turn Arkham Asylum from I was going to say, Mythos. I didn't know that Batman took Arkham from H.P. Lovecraft. Yep. Um, it's referenced in uh, Pickman's model and in the shadow over Innsmouth. Um, it's, you know, a notorious place. Uh, and the the building itself I've been obsessed with for a long time. And the um, the style of building they they call it out in here. It's a Kirkbride um, built style, which is the a main corridor up in the middle, like the body of a bat, and then two two to four bat wings kind of coming off it off the sides. Um, and they were built very specifically to let a lot of light in. Um, but they built like hundreds of these all over the world. There's a bunch of them. Some of them are still operating in America with this same basic floor plan. Um, there's one in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, which is someplace near here that I've um, been to quite a bit. They're up in Tra- uh, Traverse City, Michigan, uh, kind of all over. Uh, I just found it fascinating as like, this was a guy, this Kirkbride, his whole uh, way of looking at taking care of people with psychiatric illnesses uh, resulted in <laughs> building these buildings and it was like a archeolo- or architectural movement that took wow. off for a uh, while one thing that really stood out to me this time is the amount of natural light so the fact that you said that the buildings were designed mm-hmm. for that it, it's stunning it, it really doesn't seem like they're using much lighting equipment in this movie I, I don't know based on the production yeah. but I'm not getting the feel that they're using very much at all a lot of the scenes seem to be just lit where they're using the the clear plastic as almost a i don't know what you call it a gauze or a a a diffuser a light diffuser to basically Mm -hmm. um spread the light around on the characters and it's really beautiful this (laughs) this building like during the day i don't know there there's some really beautiful areas there's also terrifying ones yeah, um, they only used a small portion. I think the actual building is like 700,000 square feet, or it was when it was all intact. Um, they only used a small portion of it. And David Caruso claims that the other parts were like just too dangerous to go into. And like the, nobody ever got comfortable shooting in there. Like the whole place seemed like it could kind of collapse on you at any moment. Um, and I agree with you. I think just the way that a lot of the shots are like, you can see the whole room that they're shooting into. You see both walls and the ceiling or the left and right walls and the ceiling and the rear wall. A lot of the time. So there's not a lot of places to hide lighting equipment. Even it's not like you can, you know, call it out in the shots where they've kind of cut around. Um, I think for the close-ups they did, but for a lot of the wide shots, it yeah. looks like natural. And light. So I love that we start this movie with a tour because we're just, we just get to take it all in mm-hmm. during the day. And because there's this security guard guy walking us through, I don't know, it feels safe right now. So as, as we're walking through this thing, yes. it just feels okay. Like, I'm, I'm okay just looking around 
uh, exploring the the cold water bath things that they show. There, there's two tubs, and they say mm-hmm. it was for cold water submersion. And you see that there's a canvas cloth over one of them with a head hole. So just imagining being yeah. in a tub and then sealed inside the tub where just your head can poke out and you're just trapped inside. It's fucking scary, man. Yes. Uh, healthcare in oh, yeah. like the 40s and 50s was just terrifying. Oh yeah, the uh, there's an episode of the podcast Lore that also is dedicated to Danvers, where he talks about the um, kind of the invention uh, and evolution of the frontal lobotomy. Yeah, the the idea of doing a lobotomy is just a cure all on somebody and basically disabling their brain just to pacify them. Um, it, it, it's haunting. Truly, the stuff of nightmares happened inside these walls, and I think the weight of that is never lost throughout this movie. I love the way that it's kind of laid in. Uh, he, uh, the guy giving the the tour, talks about the lobotomies a little bit here, and that they were perfected at Danvers. Um, and we get a scene later where you get some more detail on it, uh, which is, it seems like banter. It seems like it isn't going to come into play necessarily. Like it's just setting up background stuff, but I love how it comes into play in the story itself. Yeah. Um, this movie, it, it doesn't quite have as many payoffs as Noroi. Yeah. I mean, it's not throwing as much at the wall, um, but there are some things that do come back in a really nice and horrifying way. <laughs> and so as they're walking through, it's just um, Phil David Caruso and Gordon and Brass from CSI. And they're walking and he said that the, they keep the most dangerous patients in the A-wings. And the A-wing is the furthest, the furthest stretch of the wing because it's farthest away from where the staff would be. And so it's as they're walking through the A-wing that Gordon looks down the hallway, our hallway that we see from the very first shot. And this is where a voice, he hears a voice say, Hello, Gordon. And this is where the movie starts to to get really creepy, but then this is also where this movie... I still haven't quite wrapped my mind around what I think this movie is yet, so I'm really excited to talk about it. Yeah, same here. Um, so after this, we uh, Gordon bids, and with Phil there, and it, Phil says it's a three-week job. Gordon says we can do it in two. And then Gordon walks outside with the guy by himself. Phil stays in to go get some tools. And Gordon tells Brass that, uh, one week. We can do this three-week job in one week. Mm-hmm. And so, it, it, desperate. It, desperate. And as we find out later that if he doesn't get this bid, his company's going to shut down. Yes. The, uh, if they get it done, they have Monday to Monday to get it done. If they get it done in that span of time, they get a $10,000 bonus on top of whatever the the rest of the fee is. And now this, we don't know the day. Are you assuming this is Friday? Yes. And that they start the following Monday, yeah. Yeah, okay. So I'm with you, because that will play into things. Um, So now, this is what really, this is when the movie starts to get under my skin, is 
I think Brad Anderson does a really great job of knowing that characters don't always need to be in this movie. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes we're just exploring the character of Danvers itself with either the the tapes playing over or just Mm -hmm. creepy music. But you get these lingering shots or these floating shots going down hallways. But this scene in particular, it's in the bedroom at the end of the A-wing, as we'll see later. It's the room with all of the newspaper clippings posted on the walls. Mm -hmm. This room, combined with the music, creeps me out in a way that like things rarely do, and I get complete goosebumps on my arms. And there's one... There's... One in particular, one headline, it's a clipping, and it just says, suddenly it's going to dawn on you. Yes. For some reason, that one stuck with me and just, like, scared the fuck out of me. I don't know why that scares me, but that, there's other things, there's another one that says night people, and it's a photo of, like, a bunch of dead guys in coffins. I also caught, this time, there's a little tiny one that says, a man of peace... Next line, an act of violence, which I had not noticed before. I haven't noticed that one. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm scared. (laughs) I'm just scared. (laughs) That's what I said. It sets such a good sense of place. Like, before the people ever get in there to do the work, to clean out all the asbestos, it, it feels like, um... Like an entity in and of itself, it really plays a role. Yeah, uh, and also just the threat of asbestos itself is yes. scary. You know? Yeah, as Josh Lucas lays out later, that it uh, one little fiber of it can get in your lungs, uh, and then twenty years later, you're drowning in your own fluids. I I don't know if you've ever seen the photos, but there's terrifying photos of like an asbestos mine in Australia and they mm-hmm. had like asbestos shoveling competitions. And oh so my just God. big dudes like shirtless, no mask shovel with just like a billowing cloud of asbestos around them. Oh my God. Yeah. Haunting. No. So, um, yeah, we get int- introduced to, um, Hank. Hank is kind of our, I don't give a shit character. I got plans. I'm going to be out of here soon. Okay. And, well, uh, hang on. There's one I wanted to call out a shot before this. Oh, yeah, please. Of, um, we see Gordon sitting outside. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Seeming, seemingly his own house. Uh, it's never, we, we don't go inside the house with him. Um, but he's sitting out there and he has that weight of the world look on his face. And he's looking through these photos of his daughter's christening or baptism or what have you. Um, and we know from his him talking to David Caruso earlier that his daughter has an ear infection. She's been crying a lot lately. She's been keeping the parents up. Um, you know, everyone is still congratulating him on his daughter's birth. So we get the idea that he took some time off work, maybe, and hasn't been around um, for a couple of months. And now he's just kind of getting back into the swing of things because the the security guard guys seem to know who he is and they, they congratulate him. Um, and we get the first time he grabs these, uh, a bunch of roses out of the passenger seat and heads into the house. And then we hear his wife in voiceover say, 
uh, something about the pretty flowers. She compliments the flowers. And then it kind of cuts off. Like, there's reverb, and her voice hangs there for a second. Um, but we don't follow him inside, and we don't see her explicitly talking to him. And it just sets us on this edge of, like, that was fucking weird. And then it goes into the next day, or into the following Monday, on the job site. And we, we get this repeated motif of him going home um, over, the, over the course of the movie with the same kind of three shots echoed repeatedly that I just love. I think it's such a, a smart device. Yeah, and I love that each time we go about one second further. Yes. And that it's, everything starts to suddenly dawn on you. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yeah, and and then, you know, second, third viewings, this is when you pick up on uh, the roses that he has. We'll see those later when they're on the floor in the the records room where the Mm -hmm. the evidence boxes are. Uh, We will see uh, Jeff eating the Oreos. We see the the empty can of peanut butter in the tunnels. Um, I didn't catch that until this time. I thought that was great. Yeah, so it's, it's definitely... It's not something that you would watch, that you would catch on your first time, that peanut butter jar or anything. Uh, but then second, third, we watch is just a fun little thing to put in there. And yeah, so we cut to Monday now after that. And this is where we get into, introduced to Hank, who's always listening to music. And Hank is basically... You can't, I'm not going to say stolen David Caruso's, because I'm <laughs> possessive of women. Uh, yes. Hank got in the middle of things, and now David Caruso's ex is now, um, I don't know if they're living together, but they're definitely in a relationship, and Hank does not seem to really give a shit about her at all. He's more just doing it to spite um, Phil, it seems. Yes. Yeah, he says that later, uh, that it's just kind of a sport to him, and, you know, it seems rude. Yes. To poor Amy, I think her name is. Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, and so, and we meet. Go ahead, sorry. Uh, we meet Jeff, played by Brendan Sexton the Third, who's he's a Brendan Sexton the Third character. He's a punk kid. Like that's <laughs> that's his stock in trade. It's what he does. Yeah, he's great, and he's Gordon's nephew. Yes. And so, one minor but kind of important thing here is that Gordon tells Jeff. Excuse me, Gordon tells Hank. Mark everything with green slime. He means the red slime. But that red slime that they use to mark things that need to be removed or things that are toxic, um, we're going to be mm-hmm. seeing that again and again. And so it's just kind of good to remember that that red slime, just kind of keep it in the back of your mind that that stuff yeah. is around. Uh, yeah, Jeff is a punk kid who shows up to his first day on the job with a boombox blasting music. Dude, <laughs> a little self-awareness, huh? Uh, know your place man come on and uh go ahead we meet mike who is a law school dropout who uh knows a lot about the asylum um and its history because his dad worked on um a lawsuit against the place uh and this is part of the theme of the story i think is uh and it's called out fairly explicitly later but like mike has a, a path for success in his life Hank thinks that his path in success to success is going to be um, gambling. He's going to win a bunch of money someday. Um, 
you get the idea that, you know, he's going to do whatever he can to make that happen for himself. Um, Phil, I don't know what his path to success is. They don't call him out, really. Well, I think, yeah, Hank says everyone has an escape plan, as we'll see later. And yeah. his, I don't think his is necessarily to be a gambler as it is to be a dealer at a casino. Because he thinks that he's yes. going to get $25,000 tips or get the keys to a Porsche 911 and stuff. Like, that's a common yeah. thing that's going to happen for him. Uh, yeah, Mike has his law degree that he can... We see him again and again being a very knowledgeable guy. He might have just had to bail on the schooling, but... Um, and then, as as Hank kind of says, Phil has weed smoking as his... <laughs> It's his release. (laughs) So, I mean, it's it's something. But uh, this also hammers the fact that, as Hank says later, Gordon has nothing. Gordon's life has always been fiber over there and over here. So, Scotland Mm -hmm. or in America, all this guy has is is fiber removal. And there are no outs for him. And we feel, you feel that entrapment in Peter Mullen. Oh, definitely. And so it's at this point, I believe, unless you have something else, that we go outside to take lunch break. And this is where we get a little bit more exposition about the facility itself and when it shut down in the 80s and deinstitutionalization that happened back then. And, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, combined with a lack of funding and satanic panic, as Mike says, was one thing that really kind of pushed for a lot of these places to be shut down which i don't know how valid this is i've i've heard a lot of about satanic panic but i don't know Mm -hmm. how um how much of a factor that had in actually changing uh our healthcare system well i mean in the specific case he calls out was that someone had um repressed memories of ritual satanic abuse that turned out to be false. Uh, They were kind of implanted or suggested by the hypnotist doing the the regression therapy, um, which was the common story with a lot of those things that happened. Uh, The Oprah memories, um, as I've heard them called, like false memories that came up. And I think there was a famous case of a daycare uh, that the children said that they were being exploited for uh, demonic rituals and stuff. And it was all, turns out it was all just made up. There was never any physical evidence of any of it. Um, and I think that the the lawsuit against Danvers specifically is called out as one of the reasons that it went under. Um, so it puts like a very specific face to the satanic panic and the retribution from it. Interesting. I, it kind of sounds to me um, that idea of implanted memories uh, in kind of a similar vein, the whole idea of like possession and exorcism bothers me because I've watched the mm-hmm. two of the three. I've watched Conjuring 2 and 3 recently and I forgot okay. how annoyed I am by uh, everything that tries to validate like that tries to validate satanic panic and tries to validate people like the Warrens and stuff, because I, I, I truly believe right. that 
people are being exploited, people who have mental illness and who are extremely vulnerable. As we see, there, it's easy to convince somebody in that state that there's something wrong with them, or that there's something inside them, or something ungodly that's happening. And I, I just think that's a cruel thing to do, and I think the treatment is often worse than the sickness itself. Oh, definitely. I think it's um, more proof of what people can do to each other in the name of uh, religion and trying to be in spiritually enlightened. We can do some really heinous things to fellow man uh, and lead them down some dark paths. Yes. And, and that's kind of why exorcism in movies in general piss me off because so often they they rely on the religious savior the priest will come in to save the day that's one reason i do mm -hmm. like um exorcism of emily rose i haven't seen that movie in 10 years but i do like the fact that it it questions the catholic church and questions that if that priest was valid or not and obviously wasn't at all but like right but I, I like that like fine because i i don't get why horror movies would glorify the catholic church it doesn't it seems like something that they do so often and i'm like why are you guys doing this but um anyway that that's neither here nor there so after this i think it's this go ahead i was gonna say i think it's just a great source of um spooky mythology for a lot of people yeah yeah i i just there's it's hard to do something new with an exorcism and i've seen um, so many possession movies now that like people writhing around people speaking yeah. in cgi voices growling like demons it's all just just dumb <laughs> so is this also the scene where he where mike um demonstrates the lobotomy uh no i believe that is um i believe that's later okay yeah okay so um yeah, no, that's later. So after this, we see um, Gordon is limping as he and Phil are walking. He tells him that he's uh, he's pulled a muscle or something. And uh, Jeff and Mike are hanging out together, running the, the tile lawnmower. I don't know what you want to call it. It looks like a really cool tool. <laughs> and they blow the fuse, and Jeff says, or... Mike tells Jeff to go check the fuse, and Brendan Sexton says, I can't. I've got nyctophobia. Uh -huh. Fear of the dark. Uh, it's, just, it's such a great, funny little moment. And again, I think Brendan Sexton is so great in this movie. I really like what he's doing. I like that it's like his one multisyllabic word is nyctophobia. He's yeah. got it. He knows it. He's going <laughs> to bust it out. I also like that. He says nyctophobia first to to validate it. Yes. <laughs> uh, so Mike goes down to fuck with the the breaker, and this is when he he turns the lights back on, and this is when he notices um, the records room or the evidence room. I don't know what you want to call it. And he goes in the room, and he's looking around at the boxes, and he sees one with red tape marked evidence up on a high shelf, and he pulls it off. And as he goes to cut open the tape, 
At the same time that he cuts the box open, Gordon cuts his finger on a sheet of plastic that he's cutting. And then as he opens the box more, Hank gets blasted with asbestos in the eyes. And mm-hmm. you kind of hear this ex- exhalation as like he's cutting down the seam of the tape like he's releasing something that's been in this box. Now, I don't believe that, though, because we've already heard the voice talk to Gordon. Yes, and judging... Well, see, that brings me questions as far as the supernatural element of it with the timeline that we later find out of the events that happened. Um, In my notes, I wrote, he's opening Pandora's box. Is this the moment the men become doomed? But I think it happened earlier. I think it happened Friday night. Yes. Um, So, yeah, I... There's a lot to talk about. Let's, let's keep moving and we'll get to it um, as we open this movie up. So Mike listens. Mike finds a, a box in, in the evidence box and it's um, Mary, Mary something's case. And Mary Hobbs. Mary Hobbs. Thank you. And there's a bunch of sessions that are recorded on cassette tape. Session one through session nine. There you go. And <laughs> on the tape, there's a label, the princess. Billy and Simon. And so Mike starts listening and it's basically um, therapy sessions that have been recorded. It's the, the therapist is trying to get to the bottom of what happened to Mary like 20 years ago. There was a crime at her, at her house that she's been committed for. What happened in old lol. <laughs> they, they do that. Lol. They do that. Um, there's a lot of fucking around with the tape. And like tape artifacts yes. and stuff. And so yep. every time he hits Lowell, they do like a weird flutter skip or something. It, it, it uh-huh. just, I love just the sound design that they did on these tapes. And I wish I had, do you have the actors' names in front of you for the voices? Uh, Mary Hobbs was Jurian Hughes, was the voice on the tape. Mm-hmm. And I don't know who the doctor's voice is, but I believe she was. A voice actor who did cartoon characters and stuff, as you'll see later in this movie. Um, I think sh- it, it's it's a performance that you could see as being silly until you think about the fact that she's she was like an eight year old kid in the sixties, so she has mm-hmm. serious trauma, and so the characters that she's created in her head are cartoon characters because that's what she would know and that's what she would emulate. It actually completely works for me, these voices that she's doing. And I totally thought the first time that I saw this that the doctor's voice was David Caruso. Okay. We'll talk about that later, because the first time I watched this <laughs> okay. movie, my I was I had some theories of what this movie was and all right. Yes. Um so we go back Again, and we see Gordon outside of his house, but this time we see that um, his leg is bleeding through his jeans. And mm-hmm. we cut back to his, um, him at work, and he's in the full asbestos suit, and he's really just uh, spacing out, and he's looking at this stairway outside, outside the grounds. And it's just this little pagoda with some gray wood and some crosses on it. And we find mm-hmm. out later that leads to the graveyard, but he seems fixated on it. And 
this point of the movie is something that stuck with me and I carry into my real life every day. I believe it's a mountain chickadee. I'm not quite sure. Uh, it goes... I, I, those birds, especially in these sounds, again, the bird mix Mm -hmm. is really loud. So every time I'm walking around and I hear those birds, I think of session nine and it like, (laughs) and it like takes me back to these moments and stuff. So it it creeps me out. This movie stuck with me for years. And that's, I love, I love how the visuals, um, how it does, it keeps showing us that little stairwell and it shows us the interior stairwells and these parts uh, come back into play later. And it's like, we're seeing echoes and foreshadowing of stuff that's going to happen there, but it makes it feel like it's haunted. And like those places have always been haunted. Yeah. And they also just makes it feel like these places have gravity. Yes, They have some kind of pull to them. At least that Gordon can feel. Maybe mm-hmm. the others don't feel it, but Gordon does. And as he's looking at this thing, he hears the same voice that he heard earlier, and it says, you can hear me. And then we cut, and we see Caruso, who's probably yelling, can you hear me, and yeah. banging on the ceiling. So once again, it's just kind of hiding its card. Um, it's pretty obvious on rewatch what's happening, but I think first time through... It does a good job of being subtle enough to not be too obvious. So is this where it's at this point that Hank is now in the tunnels and this is where he finds a coin. Okay, yeah. And and then he finds um a few more and he notices that basically they all seem to be coming from this one brick wall. What'd you think of this part? I mean it seems a little handy that like there's a path leading to to or from the place where this stash of uh, coins and money, and it looks like um, it looks like somebody took a bunch of the patient's belongings, probably from when they would check in, and anything that they could, they would kind of put away in here. It was either that or that it was a hoard from like the crematorium, because there's also some gold teeth in there that we find later, and some dental bridges and stuff. So I wasn't quite sure which if it was supposed to be. How nefarious is it? So yeah, so Hank cuts around the brick and removes a brick in this wall, and he literally gets showered like it's a jackpot on yes. a, from, a, a, from a slot machine. And yeah, like you said, it's all sorts of stuff. And then we pull back from the other side of the wall, and what he's digging into is the incinerator inside okay. the morgue. But Brad Anderson, I believe from the, the commentary, said it was not his intention to imply that these were like the treasures of burned bodies are like, okay. It was, but watching it this time, I think for me, especially with how he finds those two coins, it looks almost like somebody's just been stuffing them in the crack of that brick wall. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, one of the former patients or I, I, I feel like it's somebody's stash that yeah. they're, they, they're hiding it there. I don't, I don't think it's anything about, like, the actual dead bodies themselves. But then again, there's a tooth. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But they, they have talked earlier about um, uh, Brass warned them that, uh, like, punk kids would go there to do drugs and uh, do graffiti and br- bust the place up. 
And he also said that former uh, inmates there, former uh, residents there, would come back, uh, at least in the early days, uh, and kind of try to inhabit their, their old rooms. That's important, too, as far as what I thought was happening later on with this movie. Yes. Um, yeah. So as we move on, um, Mike keeps listening to the tapes and he finds out that, uh, well, the princess has been the only one talking so far. And now in session five or so, uh, we have the emergence of Billy and Billy explains that the princess lives in the tongue because she's always talking. And mm-hmm. Billy lives in the eyes because Billy sees everything. And um, it's at this point that we really get, at least for two of the characters, we get them like a, a connection that's almost on an addiction level to Danvers itself, where they're now getting sucked into it with Hank and his treasure and Mike with this mystery. We're getting these guys now that are um, being consumed by this, by this location. Yes. And this is now where we go outside to have lunch and Jeff talks about he reads that people were committed for having mortified pride. And and then he takes the applesauce and starts drooling with it. And this is when Mike grabs him. Okay. So what do you think of this part? This is part's a little intense for coworkers, huh? Yeah. First of all, these guys seem to take a lot of breaks for having to get this job done in a week. They're always Ma- we see around. Mike lying against the tree reading a book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, the sense of urgency isn't quite there, is it? Yeah. Um, and let's see. So he, uh, Mike has chopsticks, and so he splits his chopsticks in half, and he, he wrestles Jeff, and he grabs him, and he's holding him, and they're like, dude, take it easy. He's like, it's fine, it's fine. But then he holds the and chopstick. And Jeff is laughing. Yeah. But then he holds the chopstick about an inch from Jeff's eyeball and goes into in-depth analysis of both what the opera- how to operate and how to do a lobotomy and then also what the effect is. And he says mm-hmm. that a quick, simple up and down jerk to sever some things in the front lobe. It's a two-minute procedure. Uh, the only effect is a black eye. And the recommended treatment is sunglasses. Yes. And that idea of in two minutes, somebody can take away your, your identity, your mm-hmm. brain, take away what makes you, you terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. Like horrifying. That's, I have to once again, recommend that, that episode of the lore podcast where Aaron talks about the lobotomy and goes into depth with it, with the development of it. Um, It's a good spooky from real life. It doesn't need any other flavoring on top of it. Um, Horror story of of what people had done to them. Yeah. So it's after this that Hank talks about having a whale, an escape plan that we talked about earlier. We see Mike back in the the room with the, the records. And this is where we see that the roses that Gordon got are covered in the red slime down in the mm-hmm. records room with the bottle of it next to there. And Hank says that Gordon would have to fold the company if he didn't get this gig and that Gordon is the Zen master of calm. Hank says that he's yes. never seen him stress before, but lately he started to see some cracks 
And he's telling this to um to Jeff. To Jeff. So he's telling this to Gordon's nephew, which may, uh, I don't know. If somebody told that me that story about my nep my uncle. I I have yeah. serious concerns, you know. Yeah. Uh and later on we do get a nice little scene between Jeff and Gordon. Uh I that I think is kind of sweet. I really like that one a lot. So yeah. um yeah, Gordon at this point he's up in the on one of the second or third floors and he calls Wendy and asks to see her and if she'll talk to him and she seems to hang up on him. And near around this time Gordon looks out the window and sees Phil buying weed, is what I assume. Yeah. Um to uh, uh this <laughs> this part's pretty <laughs> dumb. Uh, I'm gonna be uh, I'm gonna be honest, this whole weed dealer thing, uh, I don't quite get it. Yeah, they they blow it up later into something. I mean, in Gordon's mind, it's somehow Phil is betraying him and hiding stuff behind his back, which comes back into play later. Um, yeah, so I mean, it, it makes sense from Gordon's paranoia, but the fact that these two guys are like, Seeming the old time friends that have worked together for years, but he can't tell him his buddy that he smokes pot. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Times have changed, though. This was in two thousand one. You know, the world was still anti pot back then. <laughs> um, so now this is where the movie starts to get spooky again. Hank goes in the middle of the night to go get his treasure. <laughs> so yeah, go ahead. When he goes in, he walks in, he puts his headphones on. This seems crazy <laughs> to me. Yes. Okay. No, he's walking around in an abandoned asylum. And I understand like the comfort of like, oh, I'm going to listen to like some sweet, like jazz soul music. And it's yeah. going to be like, but at the same time, <laughs> you're blocking your, like all of your senses off. So it's, it's a complete yep. false sense of security that you would get from listening to music like that. Yeah, crazy decision. Yeah, he's in these he's in the tunnels underneath the asylum and he only has his flashlight. They're dark, they're spooky, they're covered in asbestos, which and he's down there without a mask with his headphones on, bumping around in the night. It's like I couldn't do it. Um we watched uh, the second Fear Street movie the other night Elizabeth and I did. And there's a scene where they have to, like, go into this spooky uh, basement of a house. And she's like, would you do that? I was like, fuck no. No, I just wouldn't do it. You just that's the movie ends. I go home. There's nothing else to it. <laughs> it's funny. So this is where uh, Hank finds the ice pick. Or the lobotomizer. Lobotomy pick. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And. um and then he also hears something. And man, what's this actor's name again? I'm blanking on his name. Josh, Josh Lucas. Lucas. He has, he hears something. And so he's like, hey, like I, I'm getting the fuck out of here. He has some gasps in this scene where things mm -hmm. startle him that feel so realistic. <laughs> he's walking around. He sees something just... <gasps> <laughs> He goes from like being the super cool dude to being totally freaked out 
and he plays both sides really well. Okay, so how upset were you when he's walking down the hallway, and the hallway splits in two, the left side is staff, the right side is patients, and he goes down Mm -hmm. the right side, the patients' hallway. Yeah. No! Don't do that! I was like, don't do that! Go down staff! Go down staff, please! And so the camera goes down staff, but he's on the patient side, so I, I at least felt a little bit safer of like, well, at least we're on the staff side. Right. And this is where there's some silhouette at the end of the hallway that walks by and scares the fuck out of him. And he starts to run away. And this is where we get a POV. Basically, he's going down towards a 90 degree turn. And now we get a POV from the other side of that turn. And we meet him mm-hmm. at that point. And it's it's just a quick cutaway. Um, but it, this part's scary, man. Also, I love those headphones that he's wearing. Those were such, like, iconic of the time. Those gray headband oh, with yeah. the tiny ears. Just iconic headphones. Yep. The uh, Right before he starts running, he finds a jar of peanut butter. Oh, on thank the you. I forgot. Yeah. Which is, did not uh, play for me the first time. I didn't get it. Like, you just naturally assume that it's just one of the people who maybe came back and was living in the tunnels. Yes. I had, I, the first time I watched this, I did not make that connection that that was Gordo's peanut butter. Yeah. Um, and now, so we get that POV shot of attacking Hank to a POV shot inside the, the respirator as someone's removing asbestos tiles from the ceiling, which I thought was just a really cool POV shot to be inside the mask like that. Oh yeah, it's very cool. And it's like, and it's a little dirty, dirty or foggy in there too. Like it really was like when you see the outside, it matches where it's kind of frosted over a little bit with uh, condensation. Yeah. It's great. And it, just every time anyone's ever worn any kind of goggle thing, it fogs up no matter what. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> oh, yeah. Just... Hey, I was going to ask, uh, have you ever had a job or a situation where you've worn one of those Tyvek clean suits like they have in this movie? Uh, no, I have not. But I've worked a job where I moved barricades and dropped cones that kind of reminded me, the cruise vibe in this movie kind of reminded me of that job. It was a mm-hmm. tough job and worked long hours doing hard manual labor, but there's some really good vibes on the crew and it was a tight crew and stuff. So I relate to this movie in that way, but um, no, but you know what? I need to go up in my attic and fuck around up there for a little bit. And after seeing mm-hmm. this, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go buy one of those Tyvek things because that would make me feel just better wearing it up there as I'm crawling yes. around in the insulation and stuff. So. Uh, no, it's on my list, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had a job where I worked in a factory, and I, I helped out with maintenance stuff. Um, and the the three tasks that were happening that week were uh, mowing the field behind the place, tarring the roof, or cleaning out the ductwork and the piping um, that this plastic, uh, they made fake wood. So it was that the plastic flowed through the sludge pits and everything. Um, And I didn't want to be tarring the roof. And I got done doing the field pretty quickly. So they sent me inside, made me put on one of those Tyvek suits, which in the middle of summer, you're drop dead hot and 
You're just swimming in your own juice. You're being basted alive in these things. They're so nasty and trying to breathe. Um, I had like the um, N95 style mask, not the big respirator. Um, but even trying to breathe in that inside one of those suits is just miserable. It was one of my least, not even least favorite, one of my most hated jobs <laughs> that I've ever wow. done. Yeah. But they had me up climbing in the ductwork like John McClane. I bet full Tyvek body suit sex is pretty kinky and fun. <laughs> it sounds very German. <laughs> sounds like something. Not to impugn my like, own nationality. Sounds but, like something an engineer would come up with. Like, oh, but this way we don't have to clean the sheets. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so very efficient. So, Hank clearly is not going to make it to work today, so we go on the roof, and I do like the humor of this part where they're like, oh, does anyone know Wendy's number? I guess we'll call information, and Phil's just like, fuck you guys, you know I know her number, give me the phone. Yeah. Uh, so, Phil says that he calls her, and that Hank told Wendy that he found his meal ticket. And he was off to Florida. Amy, he told Amy. Thank you. That he was off to Florida for casino school. Do you believe mm-hmm. that he called Amy? He said, she says that Phil says that she says that he packed up his stuff and left basically without saying anything. And I don't know. Like, would he have done that before he went and got the stash of stuff? Here's, here's, also, is he just planning on leaving and living off of these silver coins? Yeah, I, I, I think here's why I believe that it happened. Earlier in the movie, we get a great shot of Hank hanging out and Amy's in the background. And it's, it's silent, but you can see that she's scolding him. He's drinking a beer with a white tank top on, pulled up so that like his belly is just hanging out. So it's like, uh-huh. this man is clearly not happy with yeah. his domestic life at home. And um, I think, I do think he would have told her like, I'm fucking out of here. I've made it. Yeah. Uh, see you later. So... I- I like that I, Phil says he'll call her back later, too. <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm not quite sure, and I don't think there's a way to know if this phone call actually does happen. Um, but this is where Peter Mullen starts to show another side of himself when mm-hmm. he gets into it with uh, David Caruso. And David Caruso starts to walk away, and he grabs him and goes... Don't walk away from me! Don't you ever fucking walk away from me! And it's like, oh shit. And these guys are nose to nose. And the fire in Peter Mullen's eyes is scary. Yes. That's a man I would not fuck with, ever. And it really works like 10 minutes after we're told that Gordon is the Zen master and he's never lost his his cool. Uh, You get a scene where he loses his cool. And what is more horrifying than somebody who doesn't lose it, losing it. They like, tend to they tend know. to lose it the hardest. Yes. I think I'm kind of, unfortunately, an example of that. Where, like, <laughs> when, I, when I do boil over it, it's usually a bit much. <laughs> but most of the time, I'm pretty chill and 
uh, pretty hard to pretty hard to upset. But so Gordon uh, tries to call his wife again. Yeah, is this where uh, we see him sitting at? He's sitting. Oh well, he's sitting at the bottom of the stairs and and the A block and the A wing, and we see him looking at his nails, and he has the red goo under his nails. Oh yeah, and so. The first watch through, I definitely thought this was blood, repeatedly, mm -hmm. didn't realize. And so, he's downstairs from the room that he's been staying at, and as we'll see later, all of his photos are on those walls. And so for me, I think he's been in that room in between these two scenes, and now he, go oh, okay. and now he goes to talk to Wendy, and he, find he goes down that same stairway that he was focused on before with the bird noises. He goes down mm -hmm. it, and we see the opposite side of that stairway. This beautiful old wooden stairway. My God, it's so cool looking. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and he sits... It looks like a covered bridge. Like, it's so great. It's beautiful. And he sits on a dead oak tree and, yeah, calls Wendy. And we see that right below him is uh, Mary Hobbs' tombstone. Yes. Of all the places to sit, huh? And yeah, the, she's patient number 444. And that's how they listed the, the tombstones. Um, so we see Mike comes across that little piece of information in the evidence room or in the uh, records room. And then we see that. And later we see it on one of the rooms upstairs, room 444. So it kind of connects all these places to Mary Hobbs and all of her personalities or spirits, depending on which way you look at it. Uh, I was going to try to make up some kind of mathematic analysis of 444 but i couldn't make up anything off the top of my head <laughs> maybe it adds up to 12 and 12 is well, something four times four times four is 64 i i, I don't know i don't know <laughs> so uh and this is the really again to go from seeing peter mullen three minutes ago being terrifying to now looking broken and Jeff walks up to him, his nephew. And this is such a sweet moment where Jeff's checking on his uncle and be like, are you okay? I'm here for you. I'm going to work my ass off. We're going to be all right. And you see right. Gordon is really, really touched by this. And, and, and Peter Mullen's acting in this scene is beautiful, I think. Yeah, because he's coming out of... And the thing is, his performance works on seeing this multiple times. Because he's coming out of this tense conversation with his wife, we think, into this moment with Jeff, and Jeff asks about Wendy. He's, oh, how's Aunt Wendy? How's the baby? Like, he's genuinely concerned for them, and uh, Gordon seems like he's touched by it, but there's actually a third layer that's going on underneath that um, when you when you're on the rewatch. And I think that's so brilliant the way that the scene plays and it's nothing with the direction. It's super simple direction. It's all what Peter Mullen is putting into that film. It's great. Yeah. And you can see it, it's like that kind of sadness where he's just swallowing it. You know, like he yes. wants to break down to his nephew, but he can't. And so they just have this handshake and he says, family man and that, you know that, i think that means so much right there and i think it's also really important for us to see like what a good guy gordon seems to be 
before all this shit happened, Gordon really seems to be a stand-up guy who is a loyal friend. Yeah, you get the idea that he's probably helped all of these guys out of jams at different times in their past, and he's the guy that you can always go to. And he's been a success. Like, he came to this country and he built his own business, and it's on rocky times now, but he's got his own house. Like, he's got a wife and kid, and it seems to be going pretty well for him from the outside. Each guy on his crew has immense respect for him also. There's not any time where any of these guys are talking shit or anything like that. It's always from a frame of concern of he's never acted like this before. Yeah, and the guys bag on each other all the time. They're always, Phil and Hank especially are picking on each other all the time, um, and everyone kind of shits on Jeff because he's, he's the newbie. He's, he only has the job because he's related to Gordon. Like, come on. Yeah, but never, never towards Gordon. Yeah. And so this is after this scene, we see Phil showering off, which again, I, I, I kind of wanted to see like their shower set up just to be curious of like, all right, well, how do asbestos guys set up temporary showers and stuff like that, you know? Right. Um, and this is where Gordon tells Phil that he hit Wendy. And he says that he came home and he's been tired and to celebrate, he had uh, roses and a bottle of champagne. And he was going to come home and celebrate, and he went to give her a kiss, and she turned around with a pot of boiling water for pasta, and next thing he knew, it was on his thigh, and he hit her. He slapped his wife. And true guilt, remorse, sadness, um, self-realization that you fucked up in a horrible way, um, there's a lot going through this. Yeah, and I think it's uh, it's cool because like it brings some of the plot elements together of why has Gordon been limping, um, you know that that injury, the uh, where has he been staying? Like because we see him seemingly not going into his own house in a scene earlier, and he says that he's been staying at a at a hotel nearby, um, and that he'll be he okay says for motel, a little while. Which is oh, he says motel, which is even more sad. Yeah. <laughs> That's rough. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And so after this scene, we see Gordon is sleeping outside the van outside of the hospital. And he ha this time we flash back, but instead of it being a flashback, it's Gordon's dream. And he's flashing back again to the moment of hitting Wendy. But this time we flash to him being covered in blood in the, the asbestos removal, the Tyvek suit. Mm-hmm. One of the only kind of like shock jump scares in this entire movie. Um, I think it's an image that they use sometimes in some of the marketing material, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, but it's as much as I don't like dream sequences like this. I think this one's fine. Yeah, it's pretty fun. <laughs> like I love in this movie that's pretty dry to this point. We get the shot of him covered in blood. Uh and like the jar, the jarring sound on the uh, soundtrack coming across and like, do it, Gordon, do it. You know, I think it's, ex yeah. it's a little bit of excitement. So he wakes up and this is where he, we finally see his burn. And I, it looks like he pours iodine on his burn. I don't know. It's some kind of dark liquid mm -hmm. that comes in a brown bottle. 
And <laughs> Peter, remember how good um, Mason was in Blue Ruin at showing pain? Oh, yeah. And drooling? I think this is right up there. Peter Mullen drools in pain in this scene, and it's pretty fucking great. Um, somewhere in here, uh, Phil has said that he will call one of his buddies, um, Craig, to replace Hank on the crew so that they can still get the job done over the weekend. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's coming up here in a minute. We got um, some cool shots now where we're seeing, like, it's POV, and it's, there's some POV, and you hear Gordon's breathing as he's just walking around the facility at night by himself. Mm-hmm. And we see a, the shadow moving inside that 444 um solitary or seclusion i think is what the brass called them yeah seclusion and it's at this point we then get thursday and i had to take a note of thursday because the clouds in this shot are incredible oh yeah the clouds look it look they look like a carpet that's made out of liquid or something it's unbelievably beautiful this shot the thursday morning shot and so this is where phil's rolling the shittiest looking joint in his truck <laughs> and, and Gordon pulls up to talk to him and Gordon has a fucking thousand yard stare in this scene. Like Peter Mullen looks detached from his body in this scene when he's yeah. talking to Phil from hit from the van to the truck. Uh, Phil hides his, his joint, but it looks like he wouldn't have had to like Gordon is, he's not there, uh, man. No, but also you can't pot smoke doesn't just like go away if you like right. waft your hand it's like all the time in movies you see characters like smoking a cigarette outside of a window and then someone's about to come in so they like wave their hand in front of the window mm-hmm. that doesn't doesn't work bud i've been a cigarette smoker i quit 18 over 18 months ago now by the way congratulations and, uh, thank you and still smoke pot and that stuff is stinky especially a joint so Yes, you're correct. Gordon's so gone that it doesn't even fucking matter, but he can definitely smell that thing. And, yeah, this is where Phil says that he's got Craig coming in tomorrow, and in one of the most heartbreaking moments, Gordon says, I want to go home. Yeah. Oh, man, that's sad. Sad. Um, So we go inside now, and Phil and Mike are talking, and Phil, they're talking about how Gordon is snapping and losing it. And Phil tells Mike, hey, you know he hit his wife. And it's at this point, Gordon, we see him downstairs from them. And I can't quite tell if this is implying that he's listening to them as they're talking about him. I Mm -hmm. think that's the implication from how it's shot and he's looking up the stairway. Yeah. It wasn't 100%. But later, when he actually comes behind them while they're talking, he comes from like seemingly a different direction. Which was why I think he might have just been out wandering randomly. I don't think... Yeah, because I don't think those stairs match up with that location. Yeah. So I don't think he knows what they were talking about. Um, It's at this point when he walks up on them, though, that every single human being has gone through this. When you're talking with someone about somebody else and then they walk into the room, Uh is it impossible to fake a conversation that (laughs) seems realistic? You totally it, forget it, how it, humans talk to each other. Yes. It's, oh, yeah, that's a nice wood on that desk. That's a yes. good grain. Yeah. I, I, it, it just, oh, it's happened to me so many times. And every time it's like, 
think of something. Like anything would be good, but instead you both look at the guy walking like wide-eyed of like, uh, pretty warm, huh? And Mike comes up with, oh, we were talking about Jeff and how he's coming along. Like that's his solution for this. But yes, he definitely like he says it in the most stilted manner. And um, Mike is played by the co-writer. As he you is. said earlier, he is Stephen Gavedin or something. And he's yeah, I don't know if he's acted in much else at all. I don't think so. But he does, I think, a great job in this movie. I think everyone. I don't think there's a bad performance in this movie, honestly. Yeah. Um, so Jeff, the fuse box goes out again and Jeff goes to check the fuse box. And when he's coming up a different staircase, he sees Hank at the stop top of the stairs wearing his sunglasses staring out the window and hank just says what are you doing here Mm-hmm. what are you doing here and jeff that is like everyone is pissed at you man <laughs> they're out for your head what are you doing here exactly scares me and then uh, he has blood on his finger or maybe it's red goo again this time it might be blood um but this part scares me, and this uh, relates back to Noroy a little bit of that part where, like, um, Marika, is that her name? I can't, I yeah. already forgot her name. <laughs> when she would just all of a sudden tar- tilt her head and start moaning, that, that thing where, like, somebody that you know is acting in a way that's completely off-character and wrong is extremely unsettling. And so this scene where, like, um, Poor Brendan Sexton, he's known this guy for like two days, and now he's being creeped the fuck out. I understand why Brendan Sexton runs to get somebody else, because like, I am not dealing with this. Yes, exactly. But this guy is freaking me the fuck out. I love his, and his reaction is like, uh, he says, uh, I've got to get something. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's great. Everyone's really bad at improvising lies in this movie. Yes. (laughs) So, so Gordon, or excuse me, uh, Jeff finds the other guys and tells them that Hank's here. And Phil's like, you're so full of shit. And he's like, I'm not full of shit. He's really here. And so they split up. And so um, Jeff and Hank, or excuse me, Jeff. Oh, God, I'm, I'm blanking on who goes with who. Oh, Gordon and Mike to go together. And Mike veers off to go to the the evidence room. And oh, then... before that, we get, they're all together and they're arguing. Oh, the... that's right. Thank you. I forgot about Yes. This is the scene. Yes. Yep. It's the moment. Okay. Thank you for reining me back here. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, so after this, they go looking for Hank in the stairwell and Hank is gone from the stairwell. And now this is where Gordon questions if Phil even made the phone call to Amy in the first place. Mm-hmm. And this is where we get another Peter Mullen, 10 out of 10 intensity. Give me the fucking cell phone! He's like, oh my <laughs> god, okay. And, <laughs> and then uh, uh, this is where Caruso... What do you think about this camera movement on Caruso here? It... I don't know if it's because of the gif and that I've seen it so many times. Uh, but it feels out of place. It feels like a camera move that doesn't happen in the rest of the movie. 
there's no visual language set up for this particular zoom in that we do. I agree. It's Caruso going, fuck you, and pointing, <laughs> and the camera like moves in really fast. It's not even a zoom, it's a physical yeah. camera it's move a, towards him. Yeah, it's like uh, a dolly in, but it's, uh, I think it's handheld. Yes, it's the only movement. It's like, <laughs> it's the only time the camera moves fast, I think, in this entire movie. There's really yeah. not much else like it. So it's off. It's off. Not offsetting, off putting. I don't know. It's surprising. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> and so this is where uh, Gordon and Mike go together to look, and Jeff and Phil go together. And Jeff and Phil are going to go into the tunnels. Gordon and Mike are going to go out towards the A wing. This is where Mike veers off and says he heard something, and he's just like, fuck this, I'm not looking for Hank, I'm gonna finish listening to these tapes. Now, I wrote down here that he is following these tapes like it's a compulsion. Do you think he's, like, addicted at this point? Is it... I mean, the whole thing comes down to where you stand on the, is it spirits, or is it, you know, just getting into these guys' heads? I I think for Mike, I think this is more of an addiction of seeing the lawyer side of his mind and his desire to actually be applying himself and to solving things. Um, okay. That's, you know, like it's at this point we see that he's taking notes and he has Princess is Innocence, Billy is Protection, and Simon is question mark, question mark. Uh, me filling in that equation... I would say Simon is vengeance mm -hmm. would be my way to fill that in. And this is where Phil and Jeff are down in the tunnels and Phil can hear some faint music coming from a tunnel inside of the tunnel, like a double tunnel. Extra scary. <laughs> yes, we hear uh, Hank's cool jazz that he listens to kind of coming down this the secondary level tunnel. Uh, and so Jeff's like, uh, I'm not fucking going down there. You can do that by yourself if you want. And now this is where the movie, all this all starts to culminate to this big ending, you know? <laughs> and, uh, yes. So the generator starts to run out of gas. And so the first thing that happens we see is the lights start to go out on Jeff where he's at. So Jeff takes off because Jeff is not going to wait for Phil. And then the last thing we hear on the tape that Mike is listening to is, we must wake up Simon. And then that shuts down. And all this shit's happening at once. And then Hank, Phil walks around the corner finally, and he sees that Hank is almost naked, saying, what are you just doing Just rocking here? back and forth. What are you He's doing just... here? Wearing his Ugh. sunglasses. And this is the awesome shot after this where we get Brendan Sexton being pursued by the darkness as he's running down this hallway, down this tunnel. Love it. Yes. Love it. So the lights shut off one by one behind him as he's running away. His nyctophobia is like kicked into high gear and he is just terrified to be down there. And so he, he finds like a hole that's a hole of light. It's just like one tiny shaft mm -hmm. of light. And when he reaches it, he gasps like he's been drowning. Yes. Uh, 
I, I love the the sound design through here as the generator is shutting down, like the whir, 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 whir of the generator shutting down and like the lights have sounds and the tape going like coming to a stop. All of it is it's so well done. There's so much sound design happening in this movie. I think really think this is why I attach so much of myself to this. Just the more mm-hmm. you watch this and the more you listen to it, the the more it pulls you in and gets scary. And so now this part also freaks me out because uh, Mike goes out and fills up the generator and puts gas and restarts it. And Mike never hits stop on the tape. And so now the tape starts back up to an empty room and Simon talks for the first time on the tape. And that mm-hmm. the fact that it happens in an empty room like this scares me. Just creeps me out. The, the way that they use it as voiceover for all of the rest of the action that happens the next couple minutes is sublime. I think it's giving you this like parallel commentary uh, of what's going on without really, it, it's not talking about the stuff, but it seems like it is. It seems like it hangs over everything. This is where we finally ha- learn what's happened in lol. <laughs> lol. So uh, Mary got a porcelain doll. Peter, a young boy who got a brand new knife for Christmas, decides it'd be fun to scare her. And he scares her as she's holding the doll to her chest and she falls. And we see photos of the scarring on her chest and some on her face. She gets really badly injured by this doll. It like breaks up into pieces and, and cuts her. And this is where we hear Simon say that I introduced myself. and. It was a good thing that Peter's knife was sharp because I told her to do it. And essentially Mary kills Peter and then in this blind possession, rage, kills her parents Mm -hmm. as well. So uh, Simon either goaded her into it, allowed her to do it, told her to do it, or forced her hand. I'm not quite sure. I mean, that's the... That's the question of the movie, right? Is what part is disassociative personality disorder or identity disorder and which part is spirits, which I don't, I I want to, I have so much to talk about that. I want to get to the end before we start to really, (laughs) because that's going to break off to so many tangents and we're so close. Okay. Um, So, uh, Jeff, I love this part. Jeff, being Jeff runs to the van and in order to comfort himself after being stuck in the dark, he eats Oreos. <laughs> he's gasping. I love that he's like, just, <sighs> and shoves an Oreo in his like, mouth. Just like the child that he is. But then also, I don't know, when I'm like hot and gasping, Oreo is like the last thing I want to eat. <laughs> oh yeah. I would not want an Oreo. <laughs> um, and so we, we see... Somebody approached Jeff, and Jeff goes to give a hug, and we get another hard, a hard cut. And um, uh, intercut with that, we get Gordon finding Mary's room, uh, the four 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 room, and all of the christening photos that he was looking at earlier are pasted up on the wall, and they're stuck to the wall with the red goop, uh, which looks like yeah. trails of blood over everything. It does, but I love that. 
used as an adhesive. Yes. And so this kind of a literal red herring of me thinking that like, he has blood under his fingernails and stuff. But right. no, we, we see him often touching these photos and touching this wall. And um, I think Caruso actually does a great job. He has his hooked... I don't know what kind of hooked blade that is. Mm-hmm. It's like a, a drywall knife, I think. Yeah. And he's standing there in the doorway. And Caruso looks... Scared? He looks ready for a fight, and he also looks extremely broken by what has happened to his friend. Yes. Uh, I think he conveys all of these standing in that doorway as he says, I found Hank. He says, you heard him, Gordon. Uh, I I think he's great in this part, man. Yeah, it really is. Um, I don't know if it was all just his own hubris that uh, did him in. Because everything I've seen David Caruso in, he's pretty damn good. So, have you you seen um, Proof of Life? Oh, years ago with Russell Crowe. Yeah, yeah. He plays like the mercenary commando. He's kind of like what um, Willem Dafoe was in Clear and Present Danger. Mm -hmm. He's badass in it. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, maybe I'm just a Caruso fan. Who knows? (laughs) I mean, I. Well, okay, I was a CSI fan just in general, but I think that um, uh, he's not as strong of a of a character as Grissom is in the original CSI, but in the CSI Miami, he does pretty well. I think he's a really fun character. Uh, I was super into, like, season one and two of CSI and stuff, and just gradually fell off. That show was enormous, though, when it first came out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh. So at this point in the movie, we cut to Friday, and um, Gordon is sitting in his van, and he hear he hears Phil come in over the radio. Except this time, there's no crackle of the radio broadcast. Oh, just, that's great! Yeah. So you just hear Gordon come in, but you never hear that. Yeah. It's a little thing, but it works. Yes. And, and um, Phil says, we found the one responsible. Which, and it's, wow. That's yeah. A, that's an ominous line, you know? Um, Gordon heads inside the uh, hospital, and I think it's in the same shot, then you see uh, Craig, Hank's replacement, show up, and, like, he whips his car up the driveway and like screeches to a halt and Larry Fessenden gets out and he's got this long kind of rocker hair going on. Uh, this guy is, he's great. He's showing up in style to save the day. Yes. Cause you know, this crew is short a man. He's going to whip his car in and he's going to come in here, fucking crush it over two days and make like a couple grand, you know? Yeah. And he, worked on a different crew. They like poached him from another crew to come do this job. Uh, so he's, he is hot shit and he would be in any other circumstances. He would be their savior in this moment. Yeah. I completely forgot that he was on his way just cause uh-huh. the movie does a good job of mentioning him, but never making it seem like his arrival or anything's going to be a big deal. And so right. the fact that he shows up at the end, I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot this guy's somewhere in this story. Yeah, I love that it. it's just another 
when he when he shows up, it's a complication that you did not expect. And we're not quite sure where it's leading anyway. So it's great. Yeah. So we're back inside now and we're in basically the plastic room, the room that is completely top to bottom wrapped in plastic like Dexter used to do. And we see that Hank is almost nude, wrapped in just like a plastic blanket, still with the sunglasses on. And Phil is standing there uh, behind him. And Gordon shows up in. Gordon, you can see on his face, he has no idea what's going on. Mm -hmm. Zero. He has no idea because when... Um, Phil says, I need you to take a really good look at him. And he does. You hear it in his voice, his fear for his friend Hank. His remorse, right. like, we're gonna help, we're gonna get you out of this, we're gonna get you help, and it, it, again, to see flashes of who Gordon was, this good, solid, loyal man, makes this ending all the more haunting. And I think it's just so interesting the way uh, that all this is shot because now, like you said, we're in this room entirely encased in the plastic. Um, and when he, when Gordon walked in, we see the different locations the men have been, and there's like trails and pools of blood that are kind of show up in the different places um, as he walks past them. And he's like, he doesn't notice them. Uh, and in this one, the light is so diffuse and so kind of ethereal in this place that it seems like it's happening out of the rest of the space of the movie. Like once you're inside this little little chamber where the, the last of this action happens. Yeah. And I love how Phil talks to him in this part, especially how Phil is lit, where Phil has that natural diffused light behind him and he looks mm -hmm. slightly angelic standing in yep. front of it and i love that caruso on this is he's so soft-spoken where he's uh you know first i need you to take a really good look at him and then um he's trying to wake up gordon you need to wake up wake up gordon and then finally we get peter mullen i am fucking awake <laughs> and all of a sudden all the curtains have been pulled and we see this is interesting now, because if Peter Mullen, if Gordon were awake, and it were still, like, just Gordon, you would think this next part wouldn't happen. Because you'd think he would be remorseful yeah. for what's happened. Well, so, he takes off Hank's sunglasses while uh, Phil is berating him, and stuck into... His right eye, I think. Uh, yes, it's uh, his right. Yeah, is the lobotomy pick stuck into Hank's eye, like right beside it, and the effect is great for this. Like, it looks like it's in there, and it looks like his eyes are still moving, and it's it's so makes me want to blink and like scratch my eye like a little bit because it feels like there's something in there now. I thought it was like. Uh, I don't know. Is that like a good, is that a great prosthetic? I'm not quite sure. And then I saw his eye move underneath it. And uh -huh. I was like, oh, that's a fucking awesome prosthetic. <laughs> and it looks, yes. it looks crusty because it's been there for days now. This 
poor fucking yep. guy. Oh, has had a spike lodged in his brain. It, uh, it's awful. It's truly fucking awful. And so this is the part where Craig walks in, and Craig is one of the least observant men I've ever seen in my life, I think. <laughs> you tell me, because Craig walks into this mm-hmm. room and does not seem to see Hank nor any of the other dead bodies in the adjacent rooms. And it's just like, yeah. hey, Gordon, I'm a little confused here, man. <laughs> Which, the only thing I could think is, again, Gordon's such a respected guy that nobody would have fear approaching him, even if things were really weird. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, because when he was walking through the facility, um, Craig uh, Fessenden has to do some, like, talking to himself acting, where he's like, hey, Gordo, blah, 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 like, Gordon, where are you at, buddy? Kind of stuff. And you get the idea that he also has known him from way back and would think he's a good dude. Uh, so when Gordon grabs him and puts him in a headlock <laughs> he's more confused than fighting back at this point uh and it so this is the part where he pulls the ice pick out of hank's head and i think it's at this point or it's maybe right after this so he lobotomizes fucking poor craig but he doesn't mm-hmm. actually lobotomize him he murders him yeah, I think he puts like, it in through, not like the it's, duct no, next to his it, eye, it's through his eye. It's through the eyeball. Uh, yeah. And Craig makes terrible noises. And it's at this point, there's a voiceover, I believe, and it says, Why did you do it, Simon? Because Mary let me, Doc. They always mm-hmm. do. And this is this next shot, there's some really fucking... Every once in a while, you get these, like, carnival sounds... It's just this like demented carnival is happening uh-huh. when things are so broken. And this is the part where you see Craig's hand. It almost looks like Gordon's hand. I'm pretty sure yep. it's Craig's hand slide its way down the right side of Gordon's face and distorts Gordon's eye in such a way it it this just unsettles me. The the way this hand moves on his face. It I don't know if he's touching him his own face with this dead guy's hand. Or if it's mm-hmm. this dead guy's hand, like, last act of self-defense. Yeah, self I think it's defense. his last gasp. Oh, oh, it's scary, though. Uh, the men, f- when they fell to the floor, they l- Gordon lands on his cell phone, which, like, shatters underneath him. Yeah. Um, and it's his last connection to anything real. I, l- I love that idea. That, And I hadn't noticed... When he, the last time Phil comes over the radio that there was no static, that's brilliant as well. Yeah, I don't think I picked, I think that was something that they mentioned in the commentary that stuck with me. Okay. I don't think I picked on that the first time. Or definitely not the first time. So, and now we get to truly what I think is one of the best pieces of acting I've seen in a horror movie. And it's the final yeah. scene with Peter Mullen in the room by himself, holding a shell of a cell phone, sobbing as he's asking, pleading his wife for forgiveness. And he says, I am so lonely here. And you just think about the fact that this guy, for a week now, he murdered his wife seven days ago. This is Friday. 
So he yep. murdered her and has been not sleeping, living in this asylum now for a whole week. Just gone. It's terrifying. And you think... It's chilling. And now what's going to happen to him now? No one's going to find Gordon until Monday. Right. Well, maybe someone will get reported missing. But I don't. it doesn't seem like any of these guys, Phil, Mike, none of them seem like they have families or anything that would like notice their absence. So it seems God, like Gordon, I hadn't thought about that. It seems like Gordon's just going to be alone with those dead bodies for at least another three days until um, Brass comes to check in, would be my guess. Yeah. And the movie ends with a helicopter shot of Danvers and we hear the voiceover and it says the doctor says where do you live Simon and Simon says I live in the weak and the wounded doc that's the end of the movie uh I love that I love that explanation of where Simon lives and I think that really leads to a lot of open questions I have about this movie that we can talk about. Mm -hmm. One thing I do want to say, in the original script, it was written, Simon says, I live in the gut. And I think that's not a good answer. No, this is way better. Yes. Because, like, I think I live in the gut would be like, oh, I, I live in that reptilian part of the brain where you're just, you respond without, with just instinct. But I think yeah. living in the weak and the wounded tells you exactly for me Simon is like Simon is kind of a universal representation for me of the darkness that we all have inside of us if things get bad enough if we mm -hmm. do get weak or if we are wounded um, you can you can get in such a dark headspace one way or another that Simon might come out of you and yeah. now, so I, I, the, my first read of this movie would be metaphorically like that, that that's kind of the, the message. However, I think this movie does a couple of things here and there to show that it is some kind of spirit that introduces itself to Gordon because he's weak. But I don't know if this is like... Simon are we saying Simon's a ghost like what did Gordon was Gordon actually hearing Simon was that metaphor I have, what do you take yeah the I think the optimist in me wants to think that it is a spirit um something that was unleashed on onto Gordon his first day there uh when they were touring the asylum um, and it's because he had kind of been so beaten down over the last few months of his child is sick all the time. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to spend time with your significant other when there's a new baby in the house. That's always rough. Um, so, and his, his job or his livelihood is on the line. And so is that of all the men that he employs. So he's, he is wounded and weak. And the, the, I don't know if it's a demon or the spirit, uh, has gotten into him that way. I don't feel like 
because if it's just his mind snapping, it would have had to snap at that moment in the institution when he first heard the voice. It's either he actually hears the voice and it causes him to do it. Uh, and, and he seems like he's blacked out all of the activities that he's done until the very end when they come back to him. I think that is, I think that fact that he does seem to black out because he shows true remorse because he thinks he hit Wendy. Yes. That I do think it shows that it's not quite that universal. I think you're correct that this movie is saying that this is more of an isolated incident that, mm-hmm. that whether it's through a spirit or demon or possession or just the influence that this thing lives in his head. It doesn't seem to control him, but it does seem to invite itself in and take control when he's at his weakest or when he's most hurt. And so, yeah, living in the weak and the wounded, well, Gordon's both weak and wounded when he does the horrible things we didn't talk about. He kills his wife and baby and dog. Uh, Mm -hmm. Uh, he's, you know, he's literally wounded by the boiling water and he's in a very weakened state. Yes. Um, and we do get flashes of, um, him offing every member of the crew. We get a little more, uh, after we've cut to black in their previous, uh, scenes, uh, at the end here, we see actually what he did to each of them and why those pools and trails of blood were there the last time he enters the place, which makes me wonder how long ago did he do it? Did he do it all Friday morning? Was it, was it Thursday? Was it over the week that he wound up doing this um, to each of them? You know, it kind of puts the whole thing into question. Yeah. I, I still take it that I think all of the killings happened like, Thursday afternoon, mm-hmm. and then Craig was Friday morning. Is yeah, that makes sense. How I read that. Um, let's talk about my batshit theory that I had while watching this movie the first time. I'm not somebody who tries to guess endings, and yeah. I normally just take the story as it's given to me. For some reason, the first time I watched this movie, when they talked about patients like to go back mm-hmm. to the 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 location and they're talking about false memories and planted memories, and the way that David Caruso talks to Gordon, I honestly thought that there is a chance that David Caruso was like a psychologist leading Gordon through events, essentially like in his mind, uh-huh. and it was like a, a guided therapy session of Gordon trying to, like, of Phil trying to get Gordon to open his eyes and to, like, to stop hiding from this dissociative identity that he has and to see the truth. Uh-huh. And so there were certain moments where he says, like, come back, Gordon. Right. Come back. Stuff like that, where I, I felt like that was almost like, where that was like the therapy audio. Like, the, 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 the recording from, like, the therapy or whatever would be part of, like, his session. And that would make sense to why he sounds like the voice on the tape. Or the voice on the tape sounds like him. Uh, exactly. From the Mary As you said earlier, like yes, yeah. exactly. Um, there was also a deleted scene when talking about... It was multiple deleted scenes. When talking about the fact that patients come back, there actually is a cut of this movie where essentially there's one 
woman who was a patient who witnesses. So you remember like the basketball court where they show it from there's like three windows above the basketball yeah. court. And one of the cuts, there's like you see like a homeless woman watching. And so she like sees Gordon committing these murders and stuff. Oh, wow. And I think I think at the end she might have killed Gordon. I, I, it didn't work at all. Like, mm-hmm. thank God they cut that out because uh, I think this movie works beautifully how it's done. I want to bring up uh, an article that I found on Little White Lies um, where the, the thesis of the article is uh, that Session 9 explores the horrors of toxic, toxic masculinity. And that it's basically... Uh, a, a big metaphor for repressed feelings and emotions um, and that these guys can't be truthful and honest with each other. And that's the basis. Uh, all their sniping at each other and thinking that the other people are out to get them. And David Caruso literally does try to get Hank fired. He talks about how Jeff isn't good at his job. Um, so it just kind of brings up everything is built around uh, Mullen in his central performance and that he is the one uh, who's in turmoil constantly, especially given the uh, crisis around men's mental health and how, how it's treated. Wow. I yeah. really like that take. I, I wasn't sure how much there was going to be there aside from like my analysis of Gordon trying to swallow everything and trying to have especially that like english scottish like stiff upper lip keep your chin up and you know men don't get affected by things uh right and so you know you see it trying to break through in scenes where he's talking to his nephew and stuff and it it, especially like when you're talking to your nephew you're talking to family if if anyone he should be able to at least talk to caruso or jeff about his life because it's like his best friend and his family but even then he swallows everything i think that that's an interesting and valid take I, i'd I'd like to read that you said it was an article yeah on little white lies uh dot com or lwl lwlies.com i'll put it in some notes i'll make it available cool. yes um josh we are I think Yep. I think we broke a record again. <laughs> I, well, I we had a we had a lot of chatter. We did, but I keep thinking like, okay, these two movies, Josh and I, we can talk for like forty five minutes on each, and then that'll like probably be it. Mm-hmm. I didn't think we were gonna go three plus, but Nope, me either. <laughs> I, I think at most there's maybe a half hour between the break and the, the opening chatter to, to cut out. I don't think there's that much. Yeah, like maybe, tw- <laughs> maybe 20 or 30 minutes. I think we're looking at three and a half hours, man. Uh-huh. <laughs> we, better, we better get out of here. Better wrap it up. Uh, do we know? Uh, we have no idea what we're watching next time, do we? No, it's going to be up to our uh, guest, I guess. Okay. Uh, well, why don't you go ahead and say our famous outro catchphrase, and then we'll get out of here. Wait a second. I don't remember it. It's be kind to yourselves. I was just putting you on the spot to make up. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> the infamous catchphrase, of course, that we all know. I don't know. What do you want to say? I said the outro like- last time. Yeah, and I liked it. It was good.
Let's, uh, be kind to yourselves, be kind to your neighbors, take care of everybody, something like that. Yep, there we go. That'll work for me. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye.